Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 88 of X-Lapsed. And uh, stop me if you heard this one before, but this might just be the shortest episode of this program yet, because we are talking about X-Men, Volume 5. Um, the book that uh, the last couple of times we read it and discussed it here um, were a pair of times that I thought that maybe it was time to, I don't know, put this show to bed, because... <laughs> I really didn't care for those issues, and the issue we're going to discuss today is more of the same. Um, it feels very fillery. It's a tie-in. It's a sort of a weak or tenuous tie-in with Empire. We already went through the four-issue Empire miniseries. Now uh, we have the aftershocks here, or the side shocks, I guess, because the two stories have absolutely nothing to do with one another. But we will do as best we can. Uh, this is X-Men Volume 5, Number 10. Had a September 2020 cover date. The story is called Fire. It's written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Lionel Francis Yu. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa white Sabolsky. Thankfully, this only had a $3.99 cover price. And just like so many of the books we've talked about of late, this one had a release date of July 29th of 2020. Now we open, and we open with Vulcan. Uh, Vulcan, he's fallen through the sky, and I believe we've seen this imagery before. And I think, or at least I want to say, it was attributed to his dying after or during the War of Kings, maybe? I don't know. I'm kind of at a disadvantage here because I definitely didn't read none of that. Anyway, he's fallen, fallen, fallen. Then he's snagged by a tentacle. And then by another, and then he's pulled into this, like, gross mouth that's uh, attached to a big green face. Now we next see him hovering before a trio of generic-looking, nothing-happening Hickman aliens. And they decide to dig a hole in him to find out what's inside, and so that's exactly what they do. What they find is fire. He has a fire within him, which is something that has been quote-unquote joked about a handful of times in these very pages. So yeah, he's got this power, this fire, this burning inside him, but he's also sort of broken and sort of twisted. Now Vulcan wakes up, and he's home at Summerhouse, so I'm guessing this is sort of a flashbacky dream, or the preceding scene was a flashbacky dream. Now he heads into the kitchen area where he runs into his deadly Genesis teammates, Petra and Sway. And they are... Are you ready for this? They're, they're preparing to get drunk on margaritas. Because we cannot, cannot and will not have a single issue of Dawn of X where uh, we don't have some drinky drink. And they're like really hyper-focused on this. They say the word margaritas about a half dozen times in like three panels. 
it's it's a bit much. They also jokingly refer to Vulcan as Emperor about a half dozen times in the next three to four panels, which I want to say there was a miniseries called Emperor Vulcan probably within the past ten years, and I'm sure I've got it somewhere, but I severely doubt I ever read it. Whatever the case, Vulcan asks them kindly that they please not call him that. Now, we learned that Jean and Cyclops had taken the kids on a day trip, but I suppose they didn't feel like waking up poor Gabriel. And I can relate. I know I would try to sneak out of the house without waking him. Who wants Vulcan around, really? They all swig their drinks, with the girls getting instant brain freeze. But Vulcan is just fine, which... leads to a rather forced joke about how he... You ready? He has a fire burning inside him. Y'all laughing yet? Is this funny? Yeah, okay, anyway. Vulcan decides he's going to go for a walk, and so he does. We get a double-page spread of creds, and then our roll call, and we've already met them. This is Vulcan, Petra, and Sway. Still, we had to dedicate an entire page to it, but that's just the cost of doing business. Now, we rejoin Vulcan, walking across the moon and talking to himself, until he happens across some vegetation. From it springs some veg-type aliens. Maybe they're Kotati? Maybe they're something else altogether? What I can say for certain is that they're uninspired-looking and quite boring. Vulcan seems to know what they're up to. Uh, they're planning to attack the Earth. Now, he recommends to them that, uh, should that actually be their plan, that they do their best not to, cr- to hit Krakoa. He then goes on to wax about uh, how violence only leads to more, while attempting to reason with them uh, that he totally gets why they'd want to attack the Earth. Back at Summer House, Petra and Sway keep drinking. And I'm so glad they devoted an entire page to this. Uh, It is worth noting that they see a mushroom cloud on the horizon, which we'll be getting to right now. Because we're back with Vulcan, and he's being tackled by those veg types. One presents this like weird blob of proto-something or another in front of Vulcan's face. And it's a plant thing that, quote, takes seed and burrows deep into whatever they want it to. And with it, they can uncover secrets. So this thing goes from, like, a blob to, like, a tentacle monster and starts embedding the tentacle ends into Vulcan's face. It's pretty disgusting. It's pretty gruesome. And so we flash back to that scene from the beginning of the issue. We learn that the trio of personality-less Hickman aliens had found a fatal flaw in Vulcan and decided to hide it under a layer of goodness, all the while saying things like crack in the firmament because that sounds like something smart people would say in regular conversation. Back to the now, Vulcan explodes. He causes an explosion, resulting in a mushroom cloud. The veg types are totally freaking out at this point, to which Vulcan seems to understand, and I guess so do we, because after all, these veg types are all about to die. Stands to reason they'd be a little bit jumpy. Vulcan proceeds to pound them all, and is soon joined by Petra and Sway, who ask him if he's about done here. They tell him everything's going to be okay, and they take him home. Vulcan laments the fact that he has the power to crack the moon in two if he wanted to. He just wishes he didn't. Didn't have the powers, didn't want to, maybe both. Petra and Sway take Vulcan back to Summerhouse, where we get to read a note that was left to him by his brother Scott. In it, Scott says that he, Gene, and Wolverine had taken the kids, Cable and Rachel, to Chandelure. And I swear, this must be like the third such vacation since the issue of New Mutants where Cyclops got Gladiator's approval to put a gateway on Chandelure. It's like they're always there. Enough. Uh, Scott basically tells Gabe that no matter what happens, 
he'll always be there for him. We ramp up the issue with an epilogue. Some of the plant types report to a plant type general, and there was apparently one survivor of Gabriel's attack. Well, a brief survivor. He's, he's dead now. They tell the general that the once survivor kept repeating a single word, and that word was Krakoa. So I guess that is how we're going to stretch this into a two-parter. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we're going giant size. It's giant size X-Men Phantom X, number one. But before we do all that, how about we talk about what it is that just happened to us with X-Men number 10. I can't say I enjoyed it. Uh, though, I'll give it one thing. It felt a lot less exploitative than the, uh, the four-part Empire colon X-Men cash-in. Uh, this issue treated Empire ju- as just something that was happening in the other books, just barely on the fringes of X-Men concerns. And so we dealt with it using a character who was arguably on the fringes of the X-Men themselves. Fair enough, right? Can't really hold that against it. The problem is, it's just not all that interesting. At least not to me. Though, you all know me by now, if it's a story set in space with a whole bunch of space trappings and a whole bunch of generic nothing-happening aliens, it's going to be an uphill climb for me, even in the best of times. And that is not a fault of the issue, nor of the creative team. Though... Let me just ask, can we please, please just start telling X-Men stories again? Not everything needs to be, you know, high-concept space. Because, I mean, just like anything else, if everything is high-concept, then, then what really is? It's just, it's a, it's a bit much. Give me, give me Jubilee and Professor X rollerblading. You know, give, give me Rogue, Betsy, Psylocke, whichever Psylocke you want, Storm, Dazzler... Send them to the mall to, to, to do some shopping or just to hang out and blow off some steam. Hell, give me Sentinels and Mojo, and I never thought I'd ask for any of that. Just give me something that feels like X-Men. Not something where the X-Men are can be replaced by any hero, because this didn't feel like an X-Men story. And really, outside of the, uh, you know, the costumes the characters were wearing, it's, it really wasn't. Vulcan as a character never really moved my needle. Um, I appreciated the fact that he was the big gotcha of the decade-plus-long Third Summers Brother lingering subplot. I mean, I'm glad they did it. I don't know if I really appreciated the way they did it, but I'm, I was I was happy that it actually was it was off the docket. You know, we were it was something that we talked about online all the time, so it was just nice to have it off the table. It's like, okay, here's your answer. We don't need to worry about this anymore. That said, it looks like we're going to be getting an all-new wrinkle <laughs> to that story in the next few months with uh, that X-Men Legends, I think it is, X-Men Legends series that's coming out. Because uh, apparently, we definitely need to make this even more confusing than it already is. Now, as much as I appreciate that Vulcan is part of X-Men's lore, as a character, he's dull. Um, his teammates, Petra and Sway, are the very definition of generic and part of me assumes that they were never meant to be brought back. They were just there as cannon fodder, and they just died. I mean, just look at them. Could you pick either of them out of a lineup? I mean, if I were to tell you that that was Monet and Husk, you'd believe it, because it's like, okay, yeah, sure, I could see that. They're really just nothing-happening characters. Again, that's not a fault of this issue. I, I, I do feel like it's doing its best to make these characters relatable, 
unfortunately relatable as it pertains to Dawn of X equals yay drinking. I don't need to dwell on that, do I? I mean, it's tired and it's played out. And that goes for the scenes themselves and my dwelling on them. All I ask is, can we please get a break from this sort of maturity, please? Another thing that I probably dwell on too much is just enough with the generic interchangeable aliens, okay? I can't be the only one tired. Maybe I am the only one tired of this. I don't know. Is there anybody else out there tired of seeing this? I guess that's just the problem we're going to have from this point on, since all of our best villains are now good guys. And, uh... Not to go too deep into the weeds, it's not like anyone's going to actually come up with any new characters. So, uh, I guess generic do-nothing aliens is just about all we're left with. Well, them and, you know, white dudes in suits. We gotta have those as well. Overall, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, not much more to say about this one. It felt, uh, very fillery, which, unfortunately, is par for the course for an issue of X-Men Volume 5 for the most part. There have been some really, really wonderful issues of this series, uh, issues 1, 6, and 7 that I can think of off the top of my head. The rest are just kind of there, and the last three, including this one, I mean, I'm this isn't fun. This isn't fun stuff. I'm hoping that maybe we're, like, maybe we're in a bit of a lame duck period just to get us to Exitens, right? Maybe these are stories or just... Months worth of books that they had to burn off Just to get us to where they want to get us to um, And I'm sure that the COVID hiatus Hasn't helped with pacing either So hopefully Hopefully things will be picking up soon We just gotta keep our eyes on the prize And get to X of Tens Because The filler here is uh, It's hard to get through Um and I mean, it, it makes me want to stop doing every single issue, which goes against the entire mandate of this show that I've, you know, put upon myself. But it's like, what can you say about this? What can you say about this issue? I mean, this isn't a long episode, but I still devoted probably three or four hours of the day to it. And I'm almost doubtful that it took four hours to write. Um, so... We'll keep our eyes on the prize. We will keep pushing forward, and we will hope for the best. Um, and I worry that uh, you know some of the stuff I'm saying here might like invalidate my opinion on things for some of you forevermore. And uh, if that's the case, you know I I get it. I get it. I and uh, I'm sorry. You know uh, this just isn't for me. And uh, usually the clapback I get anytime I dare say anything uh, bad about something that Hickman writes is, uh, "Hey, it's Hickman." You know, that's that's the clapback I get. It's like, well, you have to get it, or you either get it or you don't. Which is, I don't know, maybe a little dismissive of any kind of differing opinions. Um, and I do remember being on a different side of that um, fence back in the uh, Morrison days, because uh, people who didn't like the Morrison books were told, hey, it's Morrison, you either get it or you don't. And uh, if you don't like it, you must not get it. Which is dismissive, but I liked the, the Morrison stuff, so I really didn't pay much mind to it. The Hickman stuff, I'm, I, I wanted to say that I'm liking it more than I'm not, but it's, it's getting dangerously close to 50-50 here. I loved Hoxpox. I loved a few issues of this run. I really, really liked his New Mutants, but uh, some of this stuff, it's uh, all filler, no killer. Um, but again, here's hoping that that's just... 
we're just filling pages so we can get to exitems because uh, I think that's where all of our eggs are currently residing. But um, I think that's all I got to say about X-Men number 10. Let's get into the mailbag. It's a short one, just a few missives. And uh, the first was a message from uh, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, who was surprised that we didn't get any mail a couple of episodes back and uh, suggested that you know, it is the time of year where people are a little bit more busy and uh, may not have the time to write in so much. And he's he's probably 100% correct. I uh, I agreed with him when he mentioned this to me. And uh, I continue to agree with him. I believe that that's probably a big part of the deal here is just not having the time to devote to, you know, a show that's, for the most part, every single day, right? It's hard to keep up with things, and it's even harder to uh, be active and engaging. So... I totally get that. But uh, thank you so much for uh, checking in. Um, Next, we have um, an answer to a question I had from Evan. This is regarding Fantastic Four X-Men, or X-Men plus Fantastic Four, whatever we called it back in the day. He says, from the you probably already found this out department, Franklin and Val got older while they and their parents were MIA post-Secret Wars. And Franklin dyed his hair early in the new FF run as an act of rebellion. Didn't know that. I did not know that yet. And uh, I almost forgot all about the question that I'd asked. So thank you for uh, filling us in on that. I, I had a follow-up question for Evan asking if if Franklin and Val were, uh, like, rapidly aged, you know? Or were we just supposed to assume that, you know, they were away for that many years? To which Evan replied with, They were out rebuilding the multiverse. That's what I took the part about Franklin creating universes as a reference to, although it certainly applies to Heroes Reborn as well. So they were gone for years to them, but less time on the 616. So it was one of those, you know, Ileana in Limbo deals, I think, where time compression was different. Uh, They went younger, came back older, and really not much time in our universe or the real Marvel universe had passed. So thank you so much for filling us in on that and filling in anyone who may not be following along with the Fantastic Four run, such as me, because I'm not. But thank you. And finally, we have a comment from Grant Kitchen over on the blog. And he asks, Is it a coincidence that episode 87 features Cable, who first appeared in the 87th issue of New Mutants? And no, no, I mean, uh, yes, <laughs> that's a coincidence. I did not plan that. That's a... Uh, very interesting. I didn't even realize that while I was uh, putting it together. And that also reminded me that the episode before that, episode 86, was X-Factor number one. And X-Factor number one, the first one, came out in 1986. So 86-86. It's uh, a lot of uh, serendipitous stuff here. So that's uh, pretty, pretty funny stuff. So thank you for pointing that out and uh, bringing it to my attention. Because, uh, hey, it's interesting, right? But that's all we got in the mailbag. I told you it was a short one. But uh, if anybody would like to write in, I'm pretty easy to find. You can get me on Twitter at Ace Comics or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could talk with us about all sorts of stuff at 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, uh, yeah, that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Um, Once again, apologies for the negativity here. It's not that these issues are bad. It's just that they're nothing happening Um, and totally outside my wheelhouse. Not a fault of the book, not a fault of the creators. Just uh, something that doesn't jive with me, unfortunately. Uh, Those of you listening in real time will know that this is a Friday episode, which means that, uh, thankfully, 
I get two days off from uh, doing Dawn of X books because I think I might need it. <laughs> this has been a spectacularly rough week of uh, of Empire uh, shenanigans here. So it'll be nice to get a breath and to dig back into our uh, Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed uh, book to uh, cover on the Sunday special. But I want to thank everyone for sticking it out, especially in these busier times uh, of the year here. I really, really appreciate it. So one more giant thank you for sharing your time with me, and uh, as always, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 94 of X-Lapsed, and uh, oh boy, it is Cable Day. Who, who would have ever thought that this would be a day I'd be looking forward to? Friggin' Cable. Kid Cable, no less. And, and here we are. I'm so excited to talk about this book. So let's just get right into it. This is Cable, volume 4, number 3. It had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called Ace in the Pouch. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Let is VC's Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price is $3.99. And this one went on sale August 19th of last year, 2020. Now we open with, uh, well, what I gotta assume is a flashback to Extermination Number 1, which still, you know, it's a. Uh, it's within eyeshot, I can see it, but I still haven't gotten around to reading those just yet. There might actually be a Sunday special series for that if I could figure out a clever way to mix lapsed with extermination. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. That's actually why we did the Phoenix Resurrects lapsed first, because I thought of a cool name first, and not sure how to fit extermination into, into our little naming structure here, but let's not worry about that just yet. Now, this is the scene where Kid Cable kills Old Cable, or Old Man Cable. This is a dream, or a flashback, or something, I suppose. Uh, Esme Cuckoo is with young Nate, and she can tell what kind of thoughts are going through his head. And, you know, it's, of course, him killing his older self. Now, he wakes up, and the pair realize that uh, they're not in Philadelphia anymore. 
jump into our double-page spread of creds, and then our roll call, and it's a short one. And we've already seen them both. It's Cable and Esme Cuckoo. We pick back up at the North Pole. Nate and Esme were nyoinked here by the trio of Space Knights last issue. Now the knights are stood around the light of Galador, that big sword, wondering how Cable is able to wield it. Esme fills Nate in on how these knights aren't robots, but they're cyborgs. And Cable's like, hey, you know what? I'm a cyborg too, so maybe that explains why he's able to use this blade. Esme asks if Nate's got a plan, and in perhaps the only smart use of overdone cursing in the Dawn of X books, our young hero proclaims that he's about to F their S up. And I say that that's a smart use of it because, I mean, he's a teenager, right? I mean, teenagers don't really exercise restraint when it comes to language, right? This isn't the try-hard horticulture stuff. This is actually something that feels natural and, and makes sense, at least to me. And so from here, we get some fighting. Now, the most Rom-looking Space Knight grabs Kid Cable by his shoulders and demands to understand how the boy is able to interface with the blade. To which, Cable does that... Like that force thing that Luke Skywalker did when he was hung upside down by the Wampa, and he summons the sword to his hand, and in so doing, he also decapitates the Space Knight. So there's that. Another Space Knight, one with one eye, gets everyone to settle down so he can explain the situation at hand. You see, the Space Knight's planet, their home planet, is dead. And so they decide they're just going to inherit the Earth. Cable's all, whoa, 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 and offers them a suggestion. What if... There was a way for them to get their home planet back. To which, the many-eyed Space Knight, who's now wearing the rom-looking one's head around his neck like a necklace, responds incredulously, because to do that, they would need a time machine. And, well, uh, you know, I, I know it's been a little while, but he does realize that they're in the Marvel Universe, right? Time machines aren't exactly outside their own possibilities here. Now, the Space Knights agree to give Cable the opportunity to make this all happen. And so, Kid Cable needs to know right away where the body of Old Man Cable is buried. Now, Esme dials into Emma Frost for some details, and we learn that he's buried at a cemetery in Westchester. Bingo, bango, we're in Westchester. And upon arrival, it looks like Old Nate's been body-napped, grave-robbed even. And by the uh, open grave sits some garbage from a Mexican fast food joint out in Staten Island. Which, I guess it's a good thing that Kid Cable is keeping up with the rest of the Marvel Universe because my spidey sense does not start tingling upon seeing this. Now it turns out that this, the Staten Island Mexican food thing, is a hint that Deadpool was here. I guess one of his gimmicks right now is that he is the king of Staten Island. This is uh, one of those moments where maybe an editorial footnote might have come in handy. Uh, I mean, do I even need to say that anymore? I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just me. Anyway, lickety split, we are at Deadpool's place. And you know what? When we're not trying to cram S.H.I.E.L.D. into every scene, Duggan writes a really, really good Deadpool. I'm not sure if this is Deadpool's first face-to-face uh, meeting with Young Cable, but it's really, really good stuff. Uh, they talk about Young Cable's complexion and uh, the lack of hair on his pouches. I <laughs> I giggled at this. I'm giggling now thinking about it. I think when you rely on things like the style of the 90s, you know, you say things like, 
you know, shoulder pads and pouches and stuff. I think that's very reductionist. And usually it causes me to like roll my eyes. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. You're talking about that era in comics and you're not a fan. So, okay. But this is kind of funny. This is kind of funny. Um, they also talk about the fact that uh, Kid Cable killed Deadpool's pal, to which I learned that Deadpool tried the very same thing just a few weeks before the kid actually got the job done. We don't get an editorial footnote for that either, but we'll take their word for it. And there's also a fun bit where Deadpool tries to guess the, the name of the cuckoo, and uh, he suggests that her name might be Bama. I don't know why that got me to chuckle, but it did. Um, now, after some more pleasantries, Deadpool agrees to take the kid to his elder body. And Deadpool talks a little bit about grave robberies, and he compares Cable to Benny Hill, who, I didn't know this, but his grave was robbed too. Uh, looks like rumors circulated that Benny Hill was buried with like loads of gold and expensive jewelry, which, you know, it's not like he needed it where he was going. So some robbers decided uh, that maybe they'd make better use of it. Kid Gable doesn't know who Benny Hill was, to which Deadpool suggests that his older self would, and that he'd likely see the humor in it as well. Then we enter the Cable Crypt, which looks kind of like a game room. Well, I mean, it actually looks exactly like a game room. Uh, in fact, Cable's body is laid out under Lucite as part of a pool table. Now, the kid smashes through and nabs his elder self's cybernetic arm. From here, an info page, and it's a letter written from Cable to Deadpool. And it's actually kind of funny. Um, he's basically asking to have his body preserved and kept safe upon his death, ex especially his prosthetic arm. Next, an info page again. Now, this is Deadpool's response to Cable, and it's also kind of funny. It's written as being exceptionally formal. In very neat cursive. Um, it doesn't feel tr like it's trying too hard. It's just plain funny. It's, it's good stuff. Uh, from here, we go back to comics, and our scene shifts back to Pennsylvania. And it's a meeting of the Order of X. You know, that weirdo cult. Uh, now, two new inductees are there to deliver a mutant baby to the Order. And I think it's safe to assume that this is Paulie and uh, What's-Her-Face's Todd. They're each given a blade and are allowed to carve X's into their faces, which they do. And we close out with the reveal of whoever's in charge here. I don't know who this guy is. He, too, has an X carved in his face, but his looks a lot like our, like, beveled Dawn of X X. You know, the one that's in all the logos of uh, these books, if that makes any sense. And, uh, well, that's where we leave it. Next episode, we continue our jaunt into the Wave 2s, and uh, we're going to be looking at another issue of Hellions, which, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. But, let's talk about this one. I love this book. <laughs> I don't know where this came from, but I love this book. It's just so much fun. Um, I've said it before, but can we, like, officially slide that Head of X crown over to Jerry Duggan? I mean, he's absolutely leading the pack with his Dawn of X offerings here, and it's not even close. I mean, there's plenty of good stuff here, but Duggan is just so far above the rest here. It's 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 ridiculous. I mean, he's written a story here that makes me want to actively check out Deadpool's ongoing series, which I didn't think such a thing was possible. I'm the kind of guy who was, you know, Deadpool before it was cool. Back when we were constantly worrying that Deadpool was going to get canceled. Like, they even made jokes about it on the books themselves because the sales were just that poor. 
Nobody cared about Deadpool. Everybody, you know, people thought of him as a relic from the 90s, which around the turn of the century, we were all way too smart for. So I was a big fan of Deadpool then, back, you know, Joe Kelly, Christopher Priest. And I mean, a lot of people were, but it's not like today. <laughs> it's really not like today. So I never thought that I would want to <laughs> actually check out another Deadpool book. It's very, very weird. Uh, I was just doing a little bit of research, and it's a little bit behind the curtain here, because uh, sometimes I write a script, and I don't get to record it for a couple days, because I, I try to keep ahead of myself here, and... When I wrote this script, I did a little bit of research, and I found out that the latest Deadpool volume, which is volume friggin' eight, if you can believe that, there's actually an issue that unofficially ties in with our Dawn of X books. That's Deadpool volume eight, number six. has to do with Krakoa and the X-Men, and, uh, and I was thinking that maybe we'll take a look at it, you know, the next time we have an opportunity, and next time there's a little opening in the schedule, we'll fit that in as an episode. And, uh... When I wrote these notes, I said, hey, if anybody listening has read it, let me know if it's worth uh, picking up. Uh, but that was a couple days ago, and in the interim, I have picked it up. So <laughs> I I guess that's a moot point. Um, now, for, for the Deadpool bits here, I still think it would have been helpful to get a footnote uh, or something, just to tell us a little bit more about Deadpool's current lot in life, uh, especially since, you know, outside that issue, he's been... He's become so distanced from the uh, from the X books, right? He's just like a Marvel hero now, or a Marvel character, I guess. He's really outside the X Men family. It's a whole different editorial team as well, if I'm if I'm remembering right. When I, as I did flip through it, that was one of the first things I looked for is to see who the editorial team was on it, and it wasn't our regular crew. So uh, Deadpool's in a whole different office, and uh, so maybe a footnote would have helped out a little bit here. Uh, I, you know, it's. I talk about this kind of thing a lot where I know we have the internet and everything is just a, a search away, but I don't think every book should be written with that in mind, right? I think that uh, these books should be able to be read and understood all on their lonesome without a Wikipedia, without a Marvel Wiki, uh, without a whatever Wiki. Uh, you know, an editorial footnote, I know it screams of comic book, but. Uh, you're you're creating comic books, so it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. Let's uh, let's see some more of those, especially if we're pulling a character who isn't really associated with the group anymore, right? Um, now what else? What else? We've got uh, more Space Knights drama, and uh, Lord help me, I'm getting into it. <laughs> so now this book's got me wanting to check out Deadpool and that pile of ROM comics that I rescued from a, a quarter bin like five years ago and never read. So. uh I still I, I asked Santa for the extra few hours a day And uh, they didn't come again They didn't come again How about we do that thing Where we talk about how humor In the Dawn of X books often fails to land And then mention how this book Manages to sidestep that criticism Each time out um, The comedy bits here are actually Kind of funny while not deflating any potential seriousness of the overall situation. I mean, this is just good writing. It could it could have interjections of levity without making... It, this isn't brew eating the damn king egg, you know? This isn't, this isn't some dude getting hit in the nuts. This isn't a rapping grandmother. This is, this is just funny stuff. Uh, and it doesn't overwhelm the... Actual ongoing, you know, arc It's it's good, really good stuff 
Um, do we need to talk about Phil Noto's art? Probably not, right? I mean, there's nothing I can say that I haven't said before. Uh, I mean, even if the writing in this series was awful, I'd still recommend it based solely on Phil Noto's art. Lucky for us, we got both fantastic art and writing here. <laughs> Again, who'd have, who'd have bet a single dime that Cable, friggin' Cable starring Kid Cable, would be a highlight for me in this uh, in this program? Uh, certainly, I certainly wouldn't. Well, I remember when they announced that they were putting a Cable book out, I just rolled my eyes and thought, oh man, they're just bloating this thing till it pops. And here we are, it's one of the books that I'm most looking forward to every single time. Overall, I'd say if you're listening to this show, you need this book in your life. Um, and if you're only buying some Dawn of X books, make sure they're the ones with Jerry Duggan's name in the credits. You won't be sorry. But uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about Cable, volume, whatever this is, number three. Uh, before we go, though, let's dip into the mailbag here. And we're going to do something a little different with the mailbag here. Uh, I've got two letters from Damien we're going to discuss here, and one that I actually pulled from the future. Well, not really from the future, but the future from me, because usually I respond to letters in the order in which they arrive. But this time, we're going to have two pieces of mail, both discussing one book here, and I wanted to have them both in this episode. But we'll start with the short one from Damien here, where he's talking about cable number two. So the previous issue of this very book. And he is just as shocked as I am. He says, why am I liking a Cable book? That's not supposed to happen. I can't bear Cable. Curse you, Jerry Duggan. Seriously, this issue was wonderful. I'm glad I discovered X-Lapsed because I never would have read this otherwise. I mean, it's, it's wild, isn't it? Cable is a fun book. I don't think that's a word, that's a phrase that could have been said in the past 30 years, and here we are. Cable is a very, very fun book. But now to Damien's other email here, we're going to talk about Marauders number 11. Now, Damien says the following. If you asked me to pick my favorite comic of 2020, it would come down to a battle between Marauders number 11 and number 12. I think they might be the perfect encapsulation... How do I say that word? Encapsulation. There we are. Of my love of the X-Men, which always comes back to the relationships between the characters. The way that the X-Men react to the death of Kitty and then her resurrection show why I've loved these characters for nearly 40 years. I was slightly perturbed that they chose to give Kitty a Viking funeral. It seemed unbelievable that no one involved realized that you shouldn't burn the Jewish girl. It's particularly jarring considering someone went so far as to research that the number 18 is a good omen in Judaism, as it represents the word chai, which means life. Nightcrawler could recognize the reference, but doesn't know that Judaism forbids cremation? I was under the impression that post-war German education insisted that all children study Judaism and the Holocaust. And I mean, even though we talked about cremation and even tattooing as it pertains to Judaism, I totally missed this in the reading. <laughs> I feel like an idiot. And we're going to talk more about the cremation in our next email here, but I'm like kicking myself for this, uh, this getting over my head. I had a whole bit about the, uh, I told a story about uh, someone trying out their comedy act on me where he was a Jewish comedian who wanted to get a tattoo, and his mother said he couldn't. And he said that uh, he would get a tattoo that says, please don't cremate, as a concession or a compromise, I guess. Um, and I totally spaced this, that they 
actually gave her the Viking funeral. They set her on fire. I mean, wow. And I also did not know that 18 is a good omen. Um, I had an idea that it was meaningful in some way, given Kurt's reaction during that scene, but I couldn't say how or why it was important. I mean, I could have Googled it, I suppose, but uh, I didn't. (laughs) But thank you for filling me in there. Uh, Damien continues. I was also surprised that the five were just throwing the failed eggs into the ocean. I know they established that Xavier doesn't restore the people until they emerge from the eggs, but surely with Kitty's powers, those 17 blank slate Kates could all survive. What if they all turn up at some point? There could be a pretty macabre story in that. And it does seem kind of bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, To me, you know... Something we talk about, another chestnut here We talk about how little these characters value life, right? And, I mean, to the point where they'll just chuck a bunch of half-kitties into the ocean um, you'd, you'd think they might grieve with each failure But, in fairness, that might take the books down a very dicey and debatey road That they'd prefer to avoid And I'd also prefer to avoid it, so we will uh, Damien continues, although Mora is below the island, she's probably fishing them out and doing awful experiments on them. That's definitely, definitely a possibility. Or maybe she's having like a tea party with them because she's so lonely down there. Uh, Damien continues, the scene with Dolores and Storm on the subway was also delightful. It's great to see the person behind the memos and get an idea of how they think. I've always been a fan of the Claremontian idea that everyone who meets Storm falls in love with her a bit. I know I did back in the day, and I'm 100% homosexual. And it's funny, when we started getting these info pages, I assumed they were just, like, for added flavor, and wouldn't actually begin to figure into the stories outside of, like, the sinister secrets and stuff like that. I'm happy to see that they are, uh, at least some of them are anyway. Uh, It makes the info pages almost worth reading. (laughs) Maybe not completely worth reading, but almost worth reading. Damien continues. It's also interesting hearing Evan's interpretation of the Crucible. It's a real testament to the possibilities of the current era that we all see the same event in slightly different ways. I'm really looking forward to your coverage of X of Tens as I loved it, but it's not perfect and it does go off in some directions that I think we will all react to differently. And yeah, you know, it's true. You mentioned, you know, your favorite issue would be would come down to Marauders 11 or 12. I think for me, if my voice would stop cracking here, these damn allergies, um, if I were to pick a favorite from 2020, it would probably be X-Men number 7. Simply because of how many questions it makes us ask and how so many of us will react just a little bit differently to what we're observing here. Um... It's not often that a book can ask a reader to draw their own conclusions and not feel like a cop-out. You know, like, there are a lot of esoteric writers out there who, like, they'll, they'll come up with half a story, but it'll be so mind-numbingly weird that they'll pass it off as a full story, and when you ask what it's all about, they're like, well, that's, a, that's for you to decide, right? Usually they feel like a cop-out. This one did not. This one really, really pulls off Everything it set out to do It gave us just enough information It withheld just enough information It it showed us a gruesome scene A new status quo A lot of questions, a lot of meat on that bone And you know, as we continue our mailbag today We might 
come to find that Marauders number 11 is up in that rarefied air where it may be a debated story. It may be a story that we will uh, we will dig into more than more than just now. Uh, Damien continues. It's a little cheeky for them to label this as a path to X of Swords, as the events have absolutely no bearing on it. In fact, Marauders is effectively put on hold for the crossover. They could publish a collection of Marauders numbers 6 through 12 and then 16 that would feel like an uninterrupted storyline. And, uh, yeah, it's too bad. And I bet they, they probably will do that. Um, and I know you mentioned that Storm is the only Marauder to get re- any real panel time during X of Tens. I guess I kind of assumed that they were bringing Kitty back in order to have her and perhaps some of the other Marauders play a larger role. So that's it's kind of disappointing. And that's, uh, what, three three issues that were basically on a hiatus from this book. That's, I guess we'll see it when we get there. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited to get to uh, Exitens, but I'm also... I'm also a little nervous that uh, it might be too big a bite because, I mean, that's going to be an entire month's worth of shows. So if it's bad, it's going to be real bad. Or if I think it's bad, I should say. It's going to be real, real tough. Uh, fingers crossed that I don't think it's bad. Uh, but thank you so much for your emails there, uh, Damien. And the reason I read the Your Marauders number 11 one is for the next email we're going to cover. And it's from our friend Jesse DeJong. He is also talking about... Marauders number 11. Now, he says, This is probably going to be the most negative email I've ever written about something that generally doesn't matter. I'm so annoyed with Marauders number 11. Starting with the entire funeral, which was wrong. First, I guess that religion is truly gone on Krakoa. They may not permit burials on the island, but it's against the Jewish religion to permit cremation. It's bad enough that Kate is getting tattoos when that is generally forbidden, but apparently no one cares about religion anymore. Being a pretty religious person myself, I find it incredibly insulting. I'm not Jewish, but I find this disrespectful of the creators. And as another mention of the cremation, which I'm sorry, I totally spaced on. I feel like such an idiot for not picking up on that, because I picked up on it the first time, but not this time. Jesse continues. Second, I know that Xavier's death was one thing, but at this point they were coming to the conclusion that Kate could not come back. This should have been an actual funeral service with hundreds of people there. Twenty mutants showed up for the service, including Agent X, who I'm not sure has ever met Kate. Kate was the headmaster of Xavier's, a member of the X-Men, New Mutants, Excalibur, S.H.I.E.L.D., the Marauders, and more. Was Caselli lazy with the art duties, or does death really mean nothing? This should have felt like an event. Someone died. Death is dead in the dawn of X. And you know, I I know I joked (laughs) that Agent X showed up. Because why the hell was Agent X there? And I mentioned that Colossus was conspicuous by his absence, but Jesse's right. Um, Kitty's loomed pretty large in the Marvel Universe uh, over the past decade and change especially. I mean, you'd think there would have been a bigger turnout. Where's Pete Wisdom? We know he's around. Why wasn't he there? He's, you know, he, depending on who you ask, he was, uh, like her first mature relationship. And if you ask Chris Claremont, that, that was, uh, there was some illegal sort of stuff there because when he came back, he had Kitty declare that she was only 16 years old when we saw her in some very, uh, mature situations in Excalibur with, uh, Mr. Wisdom. Hmm. Uh, where was the rest of the Excalibur team? The original Excalibur team, right? I mean, 
We know Megan's on the island, right? I don't know why they didn't show up to this. Where was Star-Lord and the Guardians of the Galaxy? I mean, she rolled with them for a bit recently, right? She's been an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but then again, who hasn't? Um, But still, there should have been representation here. You're right. If I had to choose between the options you presented with either Caselli being lazy and death being meaningless... Gotta go with the latter here. Death is meaningless. Uh, This could have been an event, and perhaps it should have been, but it's a different world now, unfortunately. Uh, Jesse continues. Third, Kate has been acting like a pirate for maybe a month in continuity, and so they throw a pirate flag on her and coins on her eyes and give her burial at sea with her sword? It's another great point. Uh, which I never even thought about Uh, She hasn't been cosplaying pirate for all that long at all So this funeral, outside of being, you know, um, against her faith It also feels very inauthentic She's been pretending to be a pirate for not very long Right? It's it's weird Um, Jesse continues This is Kitty Pride. This is the X-Men who was our eyes in the X-Men for decades. She was the kid that kids could relate to. She was everyone's sister. She was a strong Jewish character that people could watch and understand. When lists are made of Jewish characters in comics, guess who tops it? Her character deserved better. What, What is going on in the X department? Hox Pox Docs was a cool idea, but now it is at the expense of removing the fundamental characteristics of some of our favorite characters. Okay, I'll breathe because Kate does come back. I will be so annoyed, though, if the reason she couldn't pass through the gates is because she has to phase through the gates. That should have been the first thing Kate would have thought of doing. She's a genius, or she was. At least the answer won't be because she was a Neo. <laughs> Oh, you know, I, I've read this mail before, and every time I get to the Neo line, I laugh. Because, <laughs> oh, because that's a that's an awful story. Oh, boy, that's an awful story. But you're right. You're right. Um, and it's weird. I'm, I'm, like, torn because, on one hand, I thought it was a really good issue. But when you do take the bits here that uh, that Jesse brings up, there's a lot of holes in it. It's still well told, it's still well written The characters relating to each other is still very, very well done I think all the characters here who were represented were represented well But there were definitely some odd omissions Um, And you know, uh, they were I mean, they were never going to throw in the towel completely on bringing her back, right? They said that it would just be a lower priority But at the same time They had no answers, so for all they knew, she was not coming back. For all we knew, for all they knew, this was going to be the one that got away. You know, Kitty was never going to come back. There was something about her that was... that the resurrection protocols could not fix. And so what she gets is a cosplay pirate funeral with Agent X as our guest of honor. (laughs) At least she's not a Neo, right? But uh, Jesse wraps up with, uh, To answer your question on how Jubilee got her powers back, she got them back toward the end of Generation X Volume 2 when Quentin Quire used the last of the Phoenix power that he had held in him, and they restored her powers. I actually didn't mind Jubilee being a vampire, but I do like her having her powers back. And I... 
I still do mind Jubilee being a vampire because that was such a uh, the Victor Gishler stuff. Um, one of the it was like a one of those hype train things, right? Uh, where it was going to be the first X Men number one in twenty years or something like that, and and they started it with a vampire story. And I mean, if you've listened to my discussions on the recent Wolverine stuff, uh, you know vampires ain't my thing. <laughs> Even in the best of times, they ain't my thing. But uh, I found that uh, Curse of the Mutants or whatever they called it, the Victor Gishla stuff, to be especially uh, poor. And uh, having Jubilee, I mean, we talk about being like too cool for the 90s stuff, right? And uh, when I see Jubilee get her powers... Well, her powers were gone after House of M, but uh, we have her turned into a vampire. It seems like just, I mean, just another nail in the coffin of a, of a 90s character. It's very, eh, it's not my thing, not my thing. But I want to thank you so much for writing in, Jesse, especially, I know it's not always easy to write negative stuff, um, especially like, <laughs> as you said, stuff that really doesn't matter too much. But, uh, I mean, I've dedicated to... Hundreds and hundreds of hours to this stuff that doesn't matter over the past several months So I'm totally there with you (laughs) I'm totally there with you But uh, I want to thank you for offering a different point of view Because this is the best part of the show for me Is actually seeing these things Seeing these stories, seeing these characters And seeing these arcs through other people's eyes Other people's prisms, you know Because uh, you and Damien both pointed out the, uh, The burning was a, a no-no, and I'd spaced it, because if had I not spaced it, I'd have mentioned it. But also the great discussion here, I find that maybe Marauders number 11 will be another one of our evergreen books, right? Like X-Men number 7, where we're just talking about it and sharing thoughts and uh, just experiencing it through each other's eyes here, and that's, like I said, that's the best part of this show. That's the best part of the show. So if anybody has any thoughts... On Marauders number 11, please, please uh, let us know so we can uh, discuss them further. But uh, thank you, Damien. Thank you, Jesse. Really, really cool stuff. Um, Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for Marauders number 11 or anything you want to talk about, uh, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can hit me up on email at 90sxmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook about whatever you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, great comic, great conversation. I had a lot of fun doing this episode, so I want to thank everyone so, so much for being a part of it and for sharing your time with me today. And uh, as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 98 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, believe it or not, it's already Cable Day again. And uh, thank goodness for that, because I've been really, really enjoying this book, and hopefully this one will continue that trend. Let's hop right on into it. This is Cable, volume 4, number 4. Had a November 2020 cover date. The story's called The Big Bang, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa Amaro, White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99 and went on sale September 2nd, 2020. So we're getting closer to being now, right? Slowly but surely, we're getting closer to being present day with the uh, on-sale dates. But uh, hopefully soon enough, soon enough, we will be all caught up. Until then, we've got cable, so let's talk about it. Now, we open with a uh, quick and dirty origin story for our trio of Galadorian or Galadarian warriors. Turns out that uh, they weren't always robots. They weren't always cyborgs. They were, in fact, human or, you know, at least made of flesh and blood. We don't want to make any assumptions here. This is a different planet. So at one point in time, they were of flesh and blood. They were political prisoners conscripted into a war, and their brains were placed into these robotic bodies with promises of being returned to their actual bodies post-war. Well, these three remained out in the galaxy trying to track down that big old sword that Cable found a couple issues back, but they couldn't find the thing. And so they entered a state of hibernation on an empty planet. You see, these these husks, these robotic shells were ancient, very, very old, and uh, needed to conserve as much power as possible, so they hibernated. Now, while they were out, Galador went boom. planet was gone. Now, their bodies were found and placed into that museum, which, again, we saw a couple issues back. Then Cable found the blade and woke him up, and here we be. Now, if you've been reading and or listening, you'll know what we're currently up to in this book. If not, well, Cable promised the Galadorians that he'd send them back in time in order to save their planet. In order to do so, he would need his older self's cybernetic left arm, which has a time machine in it. Our man, or our boy, actually, our teen Cable here, he fetched it from Deadpool, who had grave-robbed old man Cable and had him placed inside a lucite pool table. So yeah, here we be. Um, Now, Kid Cable is chatting up Esme Cuckoo, and he knows that he's made a pretty big mistake with the promise that he's made to these uh, Space Knights. He figures it shouldn't be too tough a battle if it were to come down to that, because at worst, it'll be the two of them versus the three cyborgs. Well, not so fast, because no sooner does he say that than like a dozen more of these Galadorian warriors arrive on the scene. So if it does come to blows, it's going to be uh, it's going to be messy. Let's do a roll call. We've, we've already seen both of the characters here. It's Cable and Esme. Double page spread of credits, then back to comics. And uh, if, uh, you know, old man Cable being part of a lucite pool table isn't weird enough, well, here's where it's going to get really, really weird. Now, Cable, Kid Cable, 
he opens up the cybernetic arm that he had stolen, right? His old man, old man Cable's left arm. And he, he opens a little hatch on it, and the innards of this arm look like normal cybernetics, right? He then closes the lid, and he thinks about how he might not have enough time to sabotage the thing. Because, of course, he can't send these, these cyborgs back in time. And then something strange happens here. He closes his eyes for a couple of panels, looks to be in very, very deep con- uh, concentration. When he opens them, he also opens that little latch on the cybernetic arm. Only now the insides, while still cybernetic, of course are also equipped with, like, this D-cell battery-shaped doodad with a biohazard label on it. It's a nuclear device that just that wasn't there a couple moments ago. Esme's pretty confused, and, uh, <laughs> tell you what, so am I. And I will continue to be confused even after we get the explanation, which hopefully will make more sense to you guys. So, Kid Cable tells the Galadorians that they'll trigger the time machine elsewhere, somewhere less populated, and he suggests that they head out to the southwest. And so, lickety-split, they're in the barren desert. He telepathically asks Esme to plant a Krakoan gateway seed while he gets to work, you know, trying to configure this little doohickey out. He goes to prepare the time machine device while thinking about the time that he killed his older self. He wonders why his older self didn't just time jump away while Kid Cable was hunting him, but then realizes that maybe this was all part of a grander plan. Next, we shift scenes to Old Man Cable, somewhere, somewhen, and he's installing that D-cell biohazard bomb in his, bio, his cybernetic arm. Then he time jumps away to his eventual old, own death, which I want to say is from one of the early issues of that extermination miniseries, which we will eventually get to. Then we get that page of Kid Cable killing Old Man Cable. Kid Cable says that the Elder should have seen this coming, to which the old man mutters that, yeah, I did. So, there you go. Back to the present, and young Nate is still working on the arm. The Galadarians, or Galadorians, they ask to be sent back 3,000 years. Cable hands over the arm, which they can detect has a nuclear element to it. Then it goes pop, not boom, not yet. Esme and Cable then leap into action, or they actually leap to avoid action, and make their way to the gateway. Cable yoinks his big old sword back, and right after they pass through to Krakoa, the time machine arm vaporizes the Space Knights. Big old mushroom cloud and everything. From here, the kids tumble back into Krakoa, landing in a very provocative way. And even though they're in a very opportunistic position, they're unable to pay it it off here because Emma Frost comes galloping over on horseback. Esme hops on the horse, and Emma does that thing where she points to her eyes and then at Cable's to let him know that she's got her eye on him. And then Emma and Esme gallop away, with Esme smiling back at our boy. From here, an info page, and it looks like the Galadorians might not be done with Cable or the Earth. Uh, We're getting some messages here from some, uh, I'm I'm assuming, Galadorians who uh, knew that the Space Knight Ronins were, uh, were blowed up, so... Maybe we'll be revisited somewhere down the line. Next, info page. It's from the X desk. And this is like our order of X bit for the issue. If you remember, there was a baby kidnapped. It's not getting a whole lot of play, but here it is. Just to let us know that it's still something that's percolating. And I'm not sure when we're going to see this come up again, because next issue here of Cable is going to be X-10s. So it might be a little while before we get back to Stinger and Paulie's baby being kidnapped by the cult. So 
we do get a little bit of an update here from the X-Desk. Not a whole lot to talk about there, just a reminder that this is, in fact, something that's going on. We go back to comics, and Nate returns home to Summer House. He's only planning to stay there for just a, you know, pit stop, because he's got to get back on task for that Order of X story, which will eventually happen. He tells Scott and Gene a bit about his most recent adventure, you know, dealing with the Space Knights, meeting Deadpool, yada, yada, yada. Scott's like, whoa, 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 you're not going anywhere just yet. We got a family dinner tonight, and even your grandfather Corsair is going to be here, so you ain't going nowhere. And Cable, you know, begrudgingly agrees to stick around to sup. And hey, even the inconvenient Alex Summers is there. No Vulcan, though, but really, who cares? We wrap up with Cyclops telling Nate not to be in such a hurry to grow up. Next episode, our 99th episode, New Mutants number 12. The next issue of Cable we discussed, like I mentioned, is X of 10. So, uh, I don't know when we're getting back to the Order of X, but... I assume we'll get there eventually. But first, how about we talk about what we learned here today? Um, now, I'm a bit confused about some of the time-hopping aspects of the story, but that's a... Uh, maybe I'm supposed to be, or maybe I'm just an idiot. That's always a possibility. Um, overall, though, this was another great time with a character I never expected to enjoy. So a net positive uh, as my overall, to uh, put the cart before the horse, I suppose... But as the, uh, the time-hoppy elements of this story, um, I don't know, there's a lot to it. Because we've been getting these little bits and pieces with the older Cable over the past you know, several issues, or the entire volume so far. And we've been trying to figure out who or what or when this is, right? We don't know if this is an older version of Kid Cable. We don't know if this is like a time loop situation, and, and you know, I pardon me because I don't know a whole lot about this kind of thing. I know it's a it's a well a well trodden trope in comics and in science fiction and in just in fiction in general. But it's like Kid Cable here. Um, is he going to grow up to be Cable? Did Kid Cable just come back in time earlier than Cable did back in New Mutants '87? Is it the same guy is what I'm trying to ask here? Is it obvious to everyone but me that it is? We deal so much with interdimensionality, right? Um, because if I'm... Because I, I, I haven't read Extermination yet. That is coming up very, very soon. But that is all about the original five that Beast brought forward in time after AVX, who we were all led to assume were the actual... Same characters, right? This was Scott, Gene, it was all of all five of them before they grew into adults from our own timeline. At least that's what we were supposed to think at first, but then we found out that they were not. They were from a different dimension, if I'm remembering this right. So if that story has to do with the original five and also introduces young Cable, does that mean that young Cable is a alternate dimension Cable or is it the same guy? I don't know what's going to happen here, like, because if it is the same guy, we have young Cable coming, killing himself, knowing that he's going to live through his life just to come back in time, just to be killed by his younger self again. It's it's over and over and over again. I just don't know how that, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, though, again, I mean, this is comics. 
we could be told one thing now and then in two years, everything we thought we knew <laughs> we'll find out is wrong. So maybe we'll be visited by five or six other cables. Who knows? Maybe X-Man will get involved. Who knows? But I, I don't understand the, uh, the bit where young cable opens the little flap on the cybernetic arm and there's not, no nuclear device there, but then he thinks on it and then there is one. It's as if to say he's able to somehow communicate with his older self or the older Cable in general. Because the older Cable, it's alluded to that he knew that younger Cable would have to deal with these space knights and so had this nuclear device implanted in order to pay it off. It's a very, it's very weird, isn't it? Um, I really don't know... I don't know if I'm making sense out of it. I don't know if I'm making sense at all, to be honest with you. But uh, even though I don't 100% get it, I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was really cool. I liked the uh, the banter and just the relationship between Nate and Esme. It's this weird uh, like friction where you don't know if, like... Because when we, when we saw a couple issues ago that the Cuckoos were basically screwing with Cable, right? They were all there watching each other date him and just having a, having a laugh at him. But here it seems like Esme is, uh, she might be a little smitten, just as Nate is in her. And then you add the Emma Frost not wanting him anywhere near her girls uh, into the mix. And it just makes for a really fun time. I wasn't expecting... It's weird to say because this is a, you know, a teenage hero here, but I wasn't expecting... Teenagery situations So it's just another Very um, pleasant surprise Coming out of this book uh, The ending with the uh, the Summer's family dinner um, It was cool, you know It was pretty cool seeing them all together uh, The The closing line with Scott telling His boy to not be in such a rush to Grow up We can look at that uh, at a, very, a few different levels, right? Because I mean, Scott knew him as an old man, and uh, I don't know if he sees signs of him turning into that old man before his time. Who knows? But uh, I thought it was a nice scene. It's always cool to see those characters together. Uh, the art. I mean, what can I say that I haven't said several times? You know, uh, fantastic art. Really, really beautiful stuff. Um, from landscapes to characters to, to you know, the mushroom cloud. <laughs> Just beautiful stuff. Um... The info page with the Order of X stuff. It's weird that that seemed to be our driving force, the Order of X story. It's what got us into the mess that we're in, right? It was Nate and uh, Esme going to Philadelphia and then running afoul of the Space Knights. So that's how that mess began. And it feels like we might have lost sight of the Order of X. We got... What, like two pages of it last issue And then we get an info page on it today Still though Honestly, I'm not really looking forward To the Order of X story So I'm okay with it being backburnered But I do appreciate that where It is still percolating It is still uh, bubbling away In the background here We know it's still something that will have to be addressed And dealt with So it's a good enough way to do it It's a great use of an info page You know I've had my issues with the info pages So this is a really cool way To... Utilize a page, not waste a whole lot of time, but also remind us that, hey, that thing we talked about, it's still happening and it's still something we're going to deal with. So 
Really no complaints about that. Really no complaints about the issue at all, except for the fact that I'm a little confused about it. But that could just be me. I think that's all I got to say. Overall, really cool stuff. Beautiful book. The art is wonderful. Always going to be looking forward to Cable. Uh, which, you know, ask any aged Chris, he would say, no. <laughs> no, I'm not looking forward to Cable. But here we are. Here we are. I'm having a grand old time with it. And I hope you are. you all are as well. Now, before we get out of here, how about we hop into the mailbag here? We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about one of the Christmas episodes. He's talking about Uncanny X-Men number 143. Now, I made a comment when I, uh, when I covered this book that this might be the Christmas story for a lot of X-Men fans because it's, it, it's got the most Christmassy cover. It's not a very Christmassy story. But it's got a very Christmassy cover. You got Kitty in the foreground, an alien behind her, a Christmas tree to the uh, to the stage left or stage whatever, behind Kitty somewhere. It's just one of those things that always makes me think of Christmas, despite the fact that the story inside isn't very Christmassy. But that's what Damien's going to be discussing today. So let's get into it. Damien says, "Merry Christmas." I listened to this episode on Christmas morning whilst peeling sprouts. Could I be any more festive? And no, I don't think it can be. I think that is peak festive, peak Christmas, <laughs> is peeling sprouts and listening to uh, Kitty Pride's Merry Chase through the mansion. Uh, Damien continues, Finally, we get to a story I have in my collection, although I only have the classic X-Men version, so I don't get those fantastic letter columns. The earliest issue of Uncanny in my collection is 150, and I only have a consecutive collection from 210. Thank God for classic X-Men. Classic X-Men was one that I totally missed out on. Um, it always seemed to be uh, just that, that one book too many growing up because I was buying as much as I could. And Classic, I was a dumb kid, you know? It didn't have the, uh, it didn't have the 90s art, right? Which is so dumb. <laughs> it's really, really dumb. But I never really uh, glommed on to Classic X-Men. And... The few that I did have when I had a few extra bucks burning a hole in my pocket, they were they were just so out of sequence, right? Um, I wasn't getting a whole story. I was getting an issue, and it could be an issue from anywhere during the Claremont run. So really didn't catch on to, uh, to Classic X-Men, and by the time I started backfilling... The, you know, the bottom had dropped out in back issues over here, so I was able just to pick whatever I needed up, you know. A couple of years ago, though, I did start filling in my classic X-Men collection um, for, for use during the From Claremont to Claremont project. I wanted to have a classic X-Men in there for whatever month we were covering, and uh, it's actually something that I was taking a task for um, in the feedback because I didn't do it. Uh, people said, hey, you, you said you were going to do every X-Book and you didn't do Classic X-Men. And the reason I didn't do Classic X-Men is because for folks who do listen to From Claremont to Claremont, you'll know that I have a different co-host for every segment of the show. And now I'm releasing them as segments so people don't have to worry about using up the entire, uh, you know, their phone or their device's entire storage, memory storage on a single episode of a program. I was going to have different hosts for different segments, and for Classic X-Men, it was going to be me and Reggie, because uh, Reggie wanted to be a part of it, and he was, you know, really fond of the Claremont stuff, so he and I were going to do those, and uh, when when that was just not going to be a thing, I was not going to replace him on the show, so 
It was just omitted from the lineup. Damien continues. I don't think I ever realized that both X-Men 142 and 143 had covers by Terry Austin. Byrne really did flounder off if he wasn't willing to do the covers for the issues he had drawn. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we talked about during this, uh, the letters page of this issue, yeah, this was Byrne's swan song. This is a piece of X-Men history here. This is he and uh, he and Austin were walking off to uh, to greener pastures or, or more fantastic pastures, I guess. And uh, Claremont wrote that touching and maybe a little passive aggressive missive at the end of that issue. And I I couldn't imagine what the working relationship was like at this point because. From everything that I've read and all the interviews that I've seen, I mean, like the last straw, Byrne said, was that Claremont added a sound effect when Colossus was yanking a tree stump out of the ground. I mean, how much how much anger and, and aggression do you need to have pent up to where that is what causes your, your cork to pop, right? I, I could understand seeing, you know, having creative differences, but something that small. It's it's interesting the things that set you off, and uh, so I could definitely see Burn being like, "Yeah, I'm contracted for twenty pages. Just get someone else to do the cover." <laughs> you know, uh, Damien continues. On to the story. Wolverine swiping claws out at Nightcrawler is a classic Burn conception of Logan. In interviews, I've seen him refer to a scene he always wanted to do, where Kitty came down for breakfast and said good morning in the wrong tone of voice, and then Wolverine killed her. He always wanted him to be on the cusp of going psycho. One of the consequences of Byrne leaving is that Claremont took Wolverine in another direction, where this scene seems out of character now. Maybe it was a good thing Byrne left then, huh? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I get wanting Wolverine to have a bit of an edge, but, ugh, you know, he very easily could have killed Nightcrawler here. And, uh... I don't know, and I guess maybe that's just the hindsight and the uh, the Claremontian uh, take on Wolverine going forward that informs that. But uh, it's never not going to seem weird. And I, and I mean, even nowadays, we've seen it in uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, where Wolverine swiping claws out at the Human Torch and thing. It's like that. That seems a little a little extreme, man. You can you know they don't have resurrection protocols for uh, victims of cosmic ray bombardment, right? That's that's just a mutant thing. But yeah, I I, just, I still don't like seeing Wolverine swipe. <laughs> Damien continues. I love the fact that you went and researched what Hanukkah was that year. Your thoroughness is impressive. <laughs> I don't know what made me do it. Uh, I. It's uh, my cosmic treadmill and weird comics history training, just looking for any little bit that I can add that maybe someone else wouldn't. And uh, when Kitty was feeling homesick and Hanukkah sick, it's like, I wonder if this was, you know, it was was this one of those years where Hanukkah and Christmas kind of kind of merge or, or kind of are concurrent? And no, no, they, it was two weeks before. <laughs> Damon continues, the Kitty Colossus missile toe scene is weird. I know right from the start, Peter was presented as the youngest of the new X-Men. He's definitely mentioned as being 18 or 19 at one point. Unfortunately, both Cockrum and Byrne tended to make him look older, so it's weird to see him presented as a teenager. Of course, Kitty is 14, so it's inappropriate for a 19-year-old to be with her. Kitty having a crush on Colossus makes sense, but him reciprocating is creepy. Yeah. 
Yeah, we talked a lot about this during that uh, that episode. It's the Kitty Colossus relationship has always been strange to me. Um, up until they were both adults, I suppose. Um, but in these younger ones, I, I remember my first times reading through like the Essential X Men volumes, and it was just like, yeah, this is weird. And you get the puppy love thing with Kitty, but Colossus like Colossus almost. Entertains it, you know, and it's a uh, a little weird, a little weird there. And I mean, he was blushing after the after the peck on the cheek, and Nightcrawler's like, "Ooh, what if she kissed you somewhere else?" It's like, no, don't don't encourage that. That's very very weird. <laughs> Damien continues. You coped well with the pronunciation problems in this issue. It's always odd to have to say words you've only seen written down. And this was about Lee Forrester, Lee Forrester, who has a full name of. Who in the hell knows? But uh, Damien says, I always pronounce them as Ungari or Ungari. And, uh, or Ungari. I can't even pronounce the pronunciation. That's that's how bad I am. Uh, these are those aliens that were the, the alien that came and fought Kitty. I think I call them a, a Nagari or a Najari. Um, Damien pronounces it Ungari. Ungari? <laughs> I'm sorry. And then Lee Forrester has a. Crazy alphabet soup of a name that's Aletuses or Aletus. Uh, Damien pronounces that Aletus, which is probably right, rather than Aletus, like I say. Um, only Chris Claremont knows for sure is what he says, and maybe we gotta find out. I, I, I have no contacts in the industry, but maybe I can get Chris Claremont to, uh, to record two or three seconds of audio just telling us how to say these damn words, right? You never know. Stranger things have happened, right? Uh, Damien concludes with, Overall, a great issue, which which makes use of thought balloons really well. Like you, I don't understand why they become so unfashionable when they're they're so useful for building character. Anyway, thanks again for this palate-cleansing week. Merry X-Lapsed. And yeah, that was one of the things that maybe I talked about a little too much. Uh, It's one of those... One of those hills I, I choose to die on is the lack of thought balloons these days because they were used to great effect in this issue. We were... We were actually able to get into Kitty's mind, Kitty's thoughts, while she's, you know, freaking out and being chased. And uh, we got to learn so much about her reactions here, where nowadays we wouldn't get anything like that because it's, you know, too comic booky. But uh, I want to thank you so much for checking out that episode and uh, and letting me uh, t- letting me keep you company uh, during your Christmas uh, meal preparation. That really. That tickles me in, in ways that maybe it shouldn't, but uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, next, we're going to go with Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number 3. Andrew says, This issue felt very middle chapter. Not a whole lot happened except a fight and a talk. A fight between Psylocke and Wildchild isn't super industri- interesting, but Steven Segovia makes it look good. I really like the way he draws Psylocke. The facial expression she has and the shape of her face give her a very distinct appearance. He also uses a lot of the page space to showcase his art, which I enjoyed, even though it makes this a brisk read. The splash page of Psylocke's sci-knifing Wildchild was particularly good, as was the large panel of her snapping his neck. It carries a lot of movement and energy, so if I'm going to be bored with the book, I'm glad I can at least enjoy looking at the art. And a lot of the credit should go to David Curiel, who's credited as the color artist. The color of this book look the colors of this book look great. 
like Psylocke's purple neon bathing the panels in light, or the way Orphan Maker is a brighter, more solid color than everyone else on panel, almost like his armor is matte plastic, while the Marauder's duller greenish-brown. The book is very pleasing to look at, and that's a very good point, and it's something that I neglect to mention more often than not, is the art. It, for me, it's like the art needs to either be like something like Phil Noto or Rod Reese, or it has to be very, very disappointing for me to really comment on it. Um, but you're right, Segovia's work here and Curiel's work on the colors, this is a very, very poppy-looking book. It's really, really a pretty book. So that's a very good point here. And it's one of those things that uh, you're echoing something that went through my mind because they dedicated an entire page of Psylocke jamming a knife into Wild Child's, you know, chin through the top of his head, you know. Usually I'd be like, we wasted a whole page on this, but here I didn't, I don't even think I mentioned that it was an entire page, which, you know, speaks to the fact that it didn't annoy me, which is a good thing, right? <laughs> Andrew continues. I'm not a fan of reusing Madeline Pryor. With her, it's just the same story over and over. And does she have a demonish magic power from, for, some, for some story reason that happened in the last decade? I would imagine that after Inferno ended 30 years ago and she died, the whole Goblin Queen thing would be over. I don't see why she'd be carrying those powers around into her subsequent revivals. How did she come back anyway? She's only a, she's, she only became alive because of the Phoenix Force. Ugh. We're probably not supposed to be thinking about this too hard. Remember Inferno? That was cool. And I I was racking my brain here trying not to trying not to just like find the answer, but trying to remember if I could actually make the hamster in my head run the wheel to figure out when Madeline Pryor came back and I think she came back as part of the sisterhood of evil mutants during somewhere in the past 10 years. I don't know how she came back. I don't know what the story was. But I, I want to say it was like her and like Lady Mast, both Lady Masterminds. Um, and maybe Spiral. I don't know. But it was a, it was an all, all women villain group that she was part of, I think. But I don't remember how she came back. I don't remember how that story went. I don't remember what her powers look like. I talked a bit about uh, the use of Madeline Pryor here and how um, maybe I just related to it <laughs> a bit because she spoke a lot about her her trouble is the fact that she shouldn't exist, but she does, and now she needs to find a reason to both exist and a way to prove she exists. And she talks about doing so um, by means of uh, inflicting pain. Because as she inflicts pain, it's proof of her own existence. And I really like that angle, especially since she is, you know, a, a nothing person or a nowhere person or however they, however they labeled it there. I really like it. Um, her powers, I don't, I don't think I ever understood them even back in Inferno, but I like the use of her here in, insofar as she's got like a, She's got an actual beef with the X-Men, you know? They, they, they made a, a paradise home for all mutants, except her. You know, she wasn't, she didn't get the invite. She didn't get the summon. And uh, it's one of those things that I, when, she, when I read that she said that, I almost wanted to, like, tear back through the Hox Pox books to see if they drew her walking through the, uh, one of the Krakoan gateways by accident, like they did with uh, Lady Mastermind. 
But uh, I like the fact that she is uh, she's hurt by this and uses it as further proof that she doesn't exist, you know, that she's so... She's so, um, not invaluable, but so, such an afterthought that she wouldn't be, she wouldn't be thought of here, right? I really dig that use of her. As far as her powers are concerned, I haven't even given them a second thought. I'm just too enraptured with the, uh, with the struggle going on in her head to, uh, to worry about that. Uh, Andrew continues. Have I said that this book looks good? Because I ain't got much more to say about issue three. The last thing I'll mention was something I thought was neat. And that was when the Marauders cracked open Orphan Maker's suit, spilling out some sort of acid in the process. Reading this series, I kept wondering what Orphan Maker's mutant abilities were and why he'd still need to be inside that suit. So a little, so this little bit was a tantalizing morsel to some questions I had assumed I wasn't supposed to be asking. I hope this actually gets followed up on in upcoming issues and we get similar answers about Nanny and her suit. And yeah, you know, I didn't give it any thought either, uh, but I did like that scene. I thought it was a really cool uh, defensive mechanism for Orphan Maker. And it's funny, we read an issue of Generation X uh, during Christmas week that featured Nanny and the Orphan Maker, and they made a big deal about Orphan Maker's new armor. So I wonder if... I don't know a heck of a lot about really either character. So I wonder if maybe having armor is just part of his gimmick. I mean, that could be, right? I mean, they made a big deal about it there, and here we're seeing some of the uses for it, even the passive uses for it in defense of, uh, of the, you know, the gooey <laughs> insides, I guess. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, it's not as good as Cable number three, but it's still much better than most of the other books. Until Scarlet from Havoc Wolverine Meltdown returns as the other, other love of Alex's life, make mine X lapsed. And uh, I thank you for that, first of all. And uh, I agree. Definitely not as not as strong as Cable number three. I, I think at this point we have one more Dawn of X number three, and it's going to be X Factor. So, yeah, I don't think Cable's being dethroned this time. <laughs> Have I mentioned how hard that book was to read last time? X-Factor number two? Ugh. That was a toughie. But uh, thank you so, so much for writing in. And uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. If anyone out there would care to write in and chat, please feel free to do so. I'm very lonely. So please write in and, and chat me up. Uh, you can find me a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Or you can send me an email at either weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or 90sxmen at gmail.com. I got access to both of them, so I just got to figure out a way to forward the emails into one so I only have to check one. But for now, wherever you want to send it, send it. It's all good. Uh, you check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for just the X-Men stuff. Uh, you can talk to us on Facebook in our little group, 90s X-Men. And you can hear all the Chris and Reggie audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to just give another huge thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me on this fine day. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 82 of X-Lapsed, where we're going to kick off uh, another little mini-series inside of our uh, main show here. And before we even get into it, I want to let you know that I have not been looking forward to this one. Um, I've been around the block a time or two with uh, Marvel and their um, tie-ins, their crossover tie-ins. And by around the block a time or two, I mean I've been a reader of Marvel Comics for about 30 years now, so I've uh, seen the way the tie-ins go, and I've come to have an expectation for how vital and how worth the money these tie-ins can be, because the the book we're going to discuss today, and I believe all four parts, uh, at least the first two, are $5 books, so... um, yeah, <laughs> now the book we're going to be talking about is Empire colon X-Men number one here And another thing before we start I want to make it clear here that I know absolutely nothing about Empire I have not followed any of it It doesn't involve any characters that I really could give half a damn about right now And uh, I just uh, really don't have the room in my brain for it Since it is a Marvel crossover, I can probably hazard a few guesses as to what this might be comprised of. And I'm thinking alien invasion. That seems like a Marvel thing to do. Uh, Heroes fighting other heroes. Yeah, that's another Marvel thing they can do. Um, Some sort of circumstances where all the major heroes of the Marvel Universe have to run and get permission from S.H.I.E.L.D. to do something. That stands to reason. And of course, uh, we will probably find out that everything we thought we knew was wrong. So, there's the checklist for Marvel crossovers. It's got to be at least one of those things. And, you know, I could have done a bit of research on the topic. And I actually had planned to, but I didn't want to learn things that I shouldn't know yet. You know, I'm doing these as, you know... I guess in, like, Let's Player parlance, it would be... These are blind runs, right? Uh, This is stuff I don't know about. You're getting my... As close to gut reaction as possible here. So I didn't want to spoil anything. Um, uh, You know, information is kind of a currency in the comics fandom. So people like to spoil things. And I didn't want to have anything spoiled here. Uh, Despite the fact that I don't entirely have high hopes for this miniseries, I still would like to discover everything myself. Um, And I mean, honestly, I'm having trouble navigating the X-Book reading order, so I couldn't even imagine trying to get a bead on that of the wider Marvel Universe, because as far as I can tell, like, almost everything ties into Empire. So as always, we will endeavor to do our best. And, you know, really shouldn't be that difficult, right? Because this issue does have a great big number one on it, 
and of course a corresponding $5 price tag. So in theory, it should tell us everything we need to know, right? Right? Well, let's find out. This is Empire X-Men number one. It had a September 2020 cover date. The story is called Alien Plants vs. Mutant Zombies. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard. Art by Matteo Bafagni. Colors Nolan Wooded. Uh, letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White Zabalski. Cover price, as mentioned, $5. Went on sale July 22nd of 2020. Now we open, and it's a year ago, and we're at the Sanctum Sanctorum. Now, Doctor Strange is chatting up somebody who wants to undo a sin they'd committed. Now, we quickly find out that this is the Scarlet Witch looking for penance for the whole, you know, no more mutants thing. I tell you, this might sound weird coming from me. If you've listened to this show, um, you know, for even a little while, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of lore and playing things where they lay and appreciating the history uh, of the of the industry and of the... Uh, you know, the, the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, in this instance. But can we just, I don't know, move on from this? The No More Mutants thing was like almost 20 years ago, and it sucked. So can we, like, stop referring to it all the damn time? Can we just move on, move on from that? Anyway, she's looking for a way to cram that genie back into the bottle. To which Doctor Strange basically tells her what's done is done. And since that bell can't be unrung, perhaps she ought to look for a bigger bell to ring. And so Wanda begins to concoct ways to make things right with the mutant people. Her mind goes to the Genosian genocide, which, you know, is that Cassandra Nova thing from way in the beginning of the Grant Morrison run, E is for Extinction. And she decides that maybe she could do something to bring back the 16 million mutants that were lost that day. And so, she spends the next 11 months in Genosha trying to figure out a way to do just this. Now, I'm not sure if Wanda's been appearing in Avengers books during the past year. I'm assuming she has. It's not like anybody's going to, you know, check and make sure that this actually fits. So, Wanda does the thing. She calls forth for there to be a resurrection. And doesn't Xavier already have the market cornered on this? Shouldn't Wanda already know that? I mean, the professor kind of broadcasted that to the world during Hoxbox, didn't he? Uh, maybe he just hadn't gotten around to the Genosian dead yet. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the case. Bada bing, bada boom. Wanda casts her spell or hex or whatever no longer mutant in origin ability she currently wields. And she is rather shocked by the result. But let's put a pin in that for just a moment. Scene shift from Genosha to Wakanda. Because, of course, we need to have a Wakanda mention here. I think Marvel creators get, like, an extra stipend for making references to Wakanda. Now, you see, the Katati, an alien race, are uh, planning to invade. Because, of course, we need an alien invasion. This is a Marvel crossover, after all. Now, these are plant-like aliens. And, uh, well, that's pretty much the only thing that makes them different from the other Skadey 800 alien races of the Marvel Universe. At least they don't have antlers, though. Well, not in the mammalian sense, anyway. Now, they're using Genosha as sort of a staging area to plan their attack. So they're not in Wakanda, but they're planning to attack Wakanda. Genosha is close enough to where they can, you know, get a little bit of a feel for the area. And we meet a soldier named Rutabaga. Really? Anyone listening ever eat a Rutabaga? I'm not sure I would even be able to point one out in a lineup. But, uh, anywho... 
The whole thing here is that they find Wakanda a suitable place for growth due to its rich soil, and the fact that it's the one place in Marvel Earth that even the mainstream can name without having to hit Wikipedia, so doubly a pleasure. Now he checks in with another veg type named Kukoi? Kukoi? Q-Q-O-I. Kukoi? Uh, now they talk about the fact that there be a lot of vibranium there, and the locals realize its value, and they wonder if these meat types might be a problem. They've actually got themselves a meaty hostage right now, as a matter of fact, and they decide, hey, let's interrogate him and find out. We find out that this hostage is actually a putrefied zombie who's missing his jaw. So everything he says just sounds like nonsense. You know, if you try talking without moving your jaw, I guess it would be kind of difficult. The plant types hand him his jaw, which thankfully had recently fallen off just now, so it was in within reach, I guess. And so our meat hostage begins to talk some sense. Now it turns out he's called Explody Boy. Really? I hate starting a sentence with, is it just me, but is it just me, or is this just a little too cute? Eh. Anywho, the sensational character find of 2020, Explody Boy, tells the veg types that, well, they're kind of boned, because they landed on an island that's full of mutants. And mutants are humans, just with powers. And they ask what his power is, and, I mean, his name is Explody Boy, so it doesn't take a rocket surgeon, or even a tree surgeon in this instance. He blows up. He blows stuff up. And, well, that's exactly what he does here. Now, Rutabaga reacts by slicing E.B.'s left arm off, which only winds up uh, tickling him. Confused, Ruta asks why E.B. ain't dead, to which he learns that, duh, he's already dead, or undead. Suddenly, there's a rumbling on the horizon, and before long, the entire place is crawling with stampeding zombified mutants. Title page, then a roll call with our, our credits? Wait, they can do that? So we, we didn't need to waste three pages every single issue of Dawn of X on this bit? All right, I'm, I'm not holding my breath that it'll last much longer than this issue, but hey, at least we know they can do it. So let's do our roll call. Magic, Penance, Angel, Black Tom Cassidy, Professor X, Magneto, and Multiple Man. Get back to comics, and we're in Paris, France. Now, Monet and Angel are on official X-Corp business, and are about to meet with a corporation called Noblesse Pharmaceuticals, or Noblesse. Uh, Ilyan is there, too, but we'll learn a bit more as to why that is in just a minute. Now, they're having a bite to eat at first, and they're being well, rather catty toward one another. They talk about having to do this because Sunspot had buggered off to outer space, which, hey, continuity, how about that? Inside, just before the meeting's about to begin, Ilyana lets it slip that she's only there to keep an eye on Monet and Warren for the professor in order to make sure they don't screw this up. Now, this rightly ticks them off, as you might imagine. Ilyana then doubles down and says she's uh, monitoring them for redundancy. Now, at this point, Warren and Monet are all screw this and decide to head back to Krakoa to confront the professor about this nonsense. They reschedule their meeting with the pharma for a later date. Back on Krakoa, and Black Tom is... Well, he's Black Tomming. That's what he does. He talks about a Krakoan gateway that's currently on the fritz. And he guesses as to where that gate might be? Hmm. Now, Xavier says he'll send a team out to take a look at it. Just then, though, Warren approaches to talk to the talk about the X-Corp potential redundancy problem. Professor X basically flips the script and sweet-talks Warren into understanding what he really meant by redundancy. Now, you see, it's not that Warren wasn't good at what he was supposed to be doing, but instead, 
ensuring that X-Corp is the best use of Warren in the first place, because Warren is so special. Whatever the case, Angel buys it, and so the situation doesn't escalate any further, thankfully. Seeing an opportunity to do some good, Angel decides that he'll check into the weirdness of the gateway to Genosha. Magneto says he could put together a team of four to do so, so we've got Angel, Magic, and Monet. Warren wonders what just might be waiting for them in Genosha and requests maybe maybe more than just four, right? Magneto repeats that Warren can only take one more citizen with him. Well, if you saw the roll call, then you already know where this is headed. Bada-bing, bada-boom, we're on Genosha, courtesy of a magic warp, and it's our trio plus Jamie Madrix. Madrox, however you say that. I don't know if I've ever said that out loud. Um, now, before they can get down to business at hand, they hear a rumbling. You know, the same rumbling we heard back like a hundred or so pages ago. They see the veg types running like hell. Moments later, they see what they're running from, and it's a zombified mutant meat types. Monet then penances up, then she and Magic get to work, slaughtering both groups. Okay. Uh, They don't get much time to rest, however, as Magic accurately points out that this felt more like a wave one than an entirety of a battle. Off to the side, Jamie can tittles fiddle-effing with the busted gateway and suggests that it's not working simply because it's overgrown with weeds. So Jamie snaps up 30 or so dupes and gets to work pruning the portal. Just then, another rumbling, and it's time for wave two. Here's the thing, though. While they're zombies, yes, they're also mutants. So it stands to reason that they've got the appropriate genes in order to pass through to Krakoa through the gateway. And it looks like that's exactly what they intend to do. Only before they can, they wind up splattered with this green goop, which, I I don't know, renders them inert. So you might be asking, what's this green goop, and where did it originate? Well, all we gots to do is flip the page to see... Ah, son of a bitch, it's horticulture. The old ladies. Really? Come on. Well, that's, uh... That's Empire colon X-Men number one. Next episode, we will do Empire colon X-Men number two. But, uh... Yeah, let's talk about this. Why not? First, I mean, the old ladies, really? I mean, this series wasn't hard enough to get into as it was, right? Uh, now we got to deal with Sophia Petrillo cursing like a sailor for, I'm assuming, the next three issues. I really wish I could find this funny. I, I really do. It is something that I've actually gotten clapped back for, because a lot of the folks listening do find this funny. I just can't. I don't know why I can't. I wish I could. I just don't. <laughs> And when I see them here, I mean, we've been talking about them a lot lately. Uh, They seem to have come up in the mailbag, uh, like, the past three or four episodes, and then here they are. It's like like that Bloody Mary and the Mirror thing. You say their name three times, and and here they come. Now, let's, let's actually start by talking about this as a part of a whole, you know? This is... Entangled and intertwined with the Empire mass crossover event, right? Which, of course, I have absolutely no knowledge nor interest about. But I am an X-Men fan, and generally speaking, an X-Men completionist, so here we are. I want to refer to something that Alan Moore once wrote regarding mass crossovers. This is probably around 1987 or so, while he was putting together his pitch for Twilight of the Superheroes for DC Comics. Now, a full discussion of that is available in the archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. 
Now, in his mind, the perfect mass crossover would have sensible and logical reasons for crossing over with other titles so that fans would not feel cheated. Okay, let's stop there and ask. Does this X-Men or Empire colon X-Men fit the bill? Well, in the broadest sense, yes. Yes. If an X-Men fan has no interest in Empire... Well, then it stands to reason that they would just skip this miniseries, right? Uh, I've actually reached out to um, some listeners of the show because I, as I was putting together these notes, I felt like I was being too negative on this book, and I wanted to touch base with some of the listeners of the show to see what they felt about this. And I heard from some that said they just skipped it because they didn't have interest in Empire. They, they just wanted to know about the X-Men, and so they skipped it. So that is definitely something that you can do. Some other listeners actually said they felt cheated, which is exactly what Moore was concerned with with his uh, mass crossover idealization or whatever here. But uh, So yes, if you don't want to know about Empire, you don't buy this miniseries. Though that doesn't address the fact that we will be seeing actual Empire crossover issues of X-Men Volume 5, but we'll talk about those when we get there, because I don't know what kind of animal, plant, vegetable, mineral, whatever those are going to be. Those could be the best things in the world, or they could be... Not. We'll find out when we get there. I'm not going to prejudge it. Now, similarly, across the table, right, if you're a Marvel Universe fan who has no interest in the X-Men, hey, then you can easily skip this as well. You won't feel cheated because you didn't bother buying it in the first place. Now, that said, and I am... I, I'm, I'm, I was going to say it can very well might be projecting, but I'm almost definitely projecting... When Marvel puts out a gaggle of crossover event tie-ins, they're banking on the rabid completionists and the lapsed casuals. Uh, Back when we talked about the four types of fans, these would be the group three, right? The ones who come for the big events, which is why we keep getting all these big events. Now, that's looking at it broadly. Now, let's take a step back and look at this simply as a story. And it's hard to say whether or not a story deserves to exist when we're talking about a field as stunty and uneven as superhero comics. But for the sake of simplicity, let's try. I'm going to need some help here from people more embedded in Empire, so I can pose a question. Does this Empire colon X-Men add a single thing to your Empire reading experience, other than the extra 20 bucks you need to spend in order to catch them all, right? As an ignorant outsider looking in, which I am, though, I mean, I have more than enough Marvel crossover experience to recognize the patterns, I can't think of any real, which is to say not financially motivated, reason for this to exist. If what we're getting here is going to be on the fringes of Empire, we're going to be spending a bunch of time and money on a story that, at best, might get a passing mention in a panel or two of the main story. That's a best-case scenario. I could be mistaken, but that's the pattern. Now, a question that I can answer personally is, would reading this issue of Empire X-Men inspire an X-Men fan who isn't really following the main Marvel Universe to dig into the wider Empire event? Speaking personally, no, absolutely not. I I might even have less interest after reading this, and I didn't think that was possible. I mean, do any of us really need another damn Marvel alien invasion story in our lives? Can we even tell them apart anymore? I mean, what's going to be announced for next year? 2021, is it going to be a Badoon invasion? 
And then in 2022, it'll be a, a brood invasion. Then in 2023, maybe maybe the Phoenix Force will come back and it'll split among the billion dead asparagus people that were killed during Dark Phoenix Saga and that they'll all come and attack the Earth. While at the same time, all the heroes battle other heroes on the streets of New York. We don't need this crap, do we? I mean, I don't. And, and I mean, I, I can't hold this against our creative team here. They're playing the ball where it lie. And, uh... You know, I, I'm sure that they didn't say, ooh, we want to be a part of this. I'm sure it was just like, hey, you're going to be a part of this. And again, this is me projecting. But it's like, I have less interest in this than I did before I opened the book. And that's not good. Granted, I'm just one idiot with a microphone. You know, I'm just one idiot who's in one corner of the Marvel Universe. So take anything I say with uh, whatever, you need, whatever you need to take it with, I guess. Uh, now let's... Let's jump to the other side of the fence here. Let's say you're a Marvel fan. Pure Marvel. Which is to say, you buy the things that Marvel tells you to buy. Which, I mean, let's be real here, for the better part of the past decade, really didn't include a push toward the X-Men books. Because Marvel really didn't seem to want those to succeed all that much. But you, as the dutiful Marvel consumer, decide that you're all in on Empire. Okay, so, you're a Marvel fan... You read Avengers books, Fantastic Four. You're reading Empire because, you know, it's the big story of the year. Now, would anything you read here in Empire X-Men inspire you to come back and pick up more X-Men books? If I were a betting man, which thankfully I'm not, I'd venture to say more than likely no. Uh, This takes for granted that everybody reading this is familiar with everything that's gone on in the X-Books over the past year. And I'd guess that a great portion of the folks who were duped into buying this had no clue, or not as much of a clue, of what's gone on over the past year that they'd need in order to get as much out of it as they might have otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of, re- of rewarding seasoned readers, right? I don't believe we should have our hands held. I don't think things should be dumbed down. But this is the first issue of a crossover with the wider Marvel Universe. And it gives nothing to entice a new or X-lapsed reader into coming back into the fold. Though, I mean, I doubt that was the goal in the first place. That isn't to say that the folks involved in it didn't want it to be successful, because I'm sure they did, right? But the goal here was inflating the page count and the bottom line of Empire, and and not a whole lot more. With that out of the way, let's get into the issue here, which, again, I want to remind everyone, costs $5. Now, to me, it had an interesting concept, but not such a great execution. I mean, we're still drawing from the House of M situation, which, you know, really should be left lying at this point. I mean, they've been milking that for a long time now, to the point where that teat's only got powder left in it. It's just, it's done. Now, the idea that Wanda would want to raise a whole bunch of zombie mutants as a form of penance, yeah, that's, that's an interesting concept. But, I mean, the entire premise of post-Hoxpox X-Men is raising the friggin' dead. So this feels incredibly redundant. I mean, perhaps during a different time, this would have made more impact. Or it would have just been something. Here, it's just like, okay, she's doing exactly what the X-Men are doing anyway. So, where's the oomph? What's the point? 
Now, something else we've talked about a lot during our discussions here is uh, talking about the attempts at humor and comedy in the Dawn of X books. And I think, yeah, I think even saying they've been uneven might be a little bit too kind. Uh, you know, especially, you know, the feedback I'm getting on a lot of the attempts at humor. Let's start with Explodey Boy. Get the hell out of here with that. This isn't funny. This isn't cute. Explodey Boy? Uh, okay. And of course, the long awaited return of the Golden Girls. Um, I gotta ask did Hickman actually plant them in X Men number three simply to revisit them in, in a meaningless crossover miniseries? I mean, I mean, I guess it fits, and I can 100% respect the forethought, but still, I very nearly tossed this book across the room when I got to that page. I'm not a fan of those characters. I wish I could be. I wish I could be, but I'm not. Um, I like the idea of the urgency of uh, fearing that these mutant zombies might make their way to Krakoa. And part of me... Actually, all of me was hoping that that's where the story was going. I was hoping that these Genosian uh, zombie mutants would broach the or breach the uh, the portal and just overrun Krakoa. So we would have like this alien invasion, uh, this zombie invasion on Krakoa's story instead of well, what it looks like we're going to get instead. So I was I was uh, I saw the zig. I wanted the zig. I expected the zig, and then we got the zag, and it was. It was, uh, you know, about as funny as brew-eating the king egg. So, which is to say, not at all. So, I, I can't really think of much more to say about this one. That wouldn't be just me repeating myself and and really just beating up on a book that doesn't deserve being beaten up on. Um, this is just a... These are mostly... Almost 100% Chris problems, you know. Um, I haven't talked to anyone who actually enjoyed this yet. Uh, but... They haven't been quite as vitriolic as I have. I don't know, it's... This feels like the perfect recipe for a book that I just don't need in my life, unfortunately. And I I suppose it might go without saying that uh, I didn't care for this. Uh, I am also not looking forward to the next three issues. And I, you know... If this is somehow your first episode of this program... Rest assured, I'm not usually this negative. And I hate being this negative about anything we cover here. But this one looks like it's going to be something of a chore. Um, I'm being completely honest here. I've been taken to task before for being too kind to books. So I'm not an overly negative guy. This is just a perfect recipe for something that I don't want to read. Now, at least when we come out the other end of Empire, we'll be able to talk about the first issue of The New X Factor, which I've heard a lot of good things about. So, yeah, we'll keep the eyes on the prize, right? And... Hey, you know, honestly, if I turn out to actually come around to enjoying Empire X-Men over the course of the next three issues and episodes, I will fully 100% admit that I was wrong here. Um, I hope that's what happens. I hope that's the case. I hope I come around, and uh, I hope something good comes out of this. Uh, Though, I keep thinking back... So the last time we did something like this, the last time we stepped away from the main books and looked at a miniseries, it was the X-Men Fantastic Four, which I had high expectations for, and while it was a fun story, it really didn't live up to what I had expected from it. And of course we know in the recent Fantastic Four number 26, it was all undone anyway, 
and Franklin's, you know, whole DNA makeup has been, <laughs> you know, refabricated or whatever. And so, I mean, hopes are not high for any sort of uh, miniseries, any sort of crossover event tie-in. So many of us, you know, me talking and so many of you listening, we've been burned by these, uh, these tie-in miniseries before. We know the the lay of the land, and we know how unimportant they're going to wind up being. But, uh, you know, before we get into the mailbag, uh, you know, sorry if I'm being too negative on this. I really don't like being negative on these books. I, I spend so many hours of the day talking and writing about these books that to do it with the purpose of, you know, spewing vitriol on it, that's just not worth anybody's time. So this one was a pass for me. Not my cup of tea, but fingers crossed it'll get better as we work our way through. And of course, you know, onward and upward after that as it is. Now let's get into the mailbag. Uh, We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about X-Force number 10. And he's answering one of my questions here, because I asked if veg was like some sort of a Britishism. (laughs) Because, boy, we saw the word veg a lot in X-Force number 10. Damien says, veg is a very British term. I genuinely don't believe I've said the word vegetables aloud for a couple of decades. It might help to stop if it's seeming too repetitive if Percy alternated it with veggies, which can be used interchangeably with veg, but can also refer to vegetarians. And, I mean, we say veggies all the time here, too, but it's just like, we were just hammered with the veg, weren't we? And I might be projecting. I'm definitely projecting, but I feel like Percy was like a little too proud of his use of veg here. I mean, without hyperbole, Black Tom must have said it a couple dozen times. Though in fairness, for all I know, Percy himself is British. I I don't know. (laughs) Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Whatever the case, too damn many uh, mentions of the word veg here. Damien continues, Onto the bulk of the story, it seems like they're setting up Beast's descent into being a bad guy. The closing scene set, kind of sets up Gene, Wolverine, and Cyclops against Beast. I can see that being fertile ground for stories. And yes, that's definitely a potential interesting angle that they could uh, they could do should they decide to go that route. I just hope it stays in the one book. You know what I mean? I hope it doesn't result in there being two ongoing X-Force books. Which, sadly, I can totally see. Um, I, I don't want to see an X-Force schism. And then we split into another. Do we, I mean, the this line is getting bloated enough as it is. We don't need a second X-Force book. I, I might be mistaken and conflating, but I'm pretty sure it was actually a time where Marvel was putting out three ongoing X-Force books. I believe there's an X-Force, an Uncanny X-Force, and a Cable and X-Force. So, I mean, I could already see the announcement that we're getting another volume of like Uncanny X-Force, or maybe you know the launch of Wolverine and X-Force. Fingers crossed that that does not happen. Damien wraps up with, By the way, I'm with you in wishing that they hadn't shown the Gene-Wolverine relationship on panel. I preferred the X-Men number one device where it was there for the shippers, but could be ignored. And yeah, you know, subtlety hasn't always been the strength of X-Force. Um, it's been better of late, but it usually wears its intentions, like, right in plain view. Um, now, the ignorability of the Gene-Logan relationship, to me, was its biggest strength. Because it didn't, it wasn't like overt, but it also made us think twice about every scene that featured any two members of our love triangle, right? We would read into things. Even, I mean, even a scene with Scott and Logan, 
without Jean there. People read into that scene. And now it's like more or less confirmed that, yeah, Jean's just banging them both. <laughs> you know, I feel like the, the the nuances of not knowing were so much more important than the revelation that, you know, what it is, is. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, the, my entire X-Men comics you know, fandom career I've always been more a fan of Logan Wanting what he can't have uh, While harboring Like an almost, almost like a reverence For Jean, you know what I mean? Like he has this crazy deep love For her But also this admiration and respect So I don't see him Actually giving in to his urges Right? I see him as having Jean on such a pedestal that he'd think her being with him would somehow cheapen her, if that makes any sense. I mean, I mean, talk about letting one's own headcanon run away with them here, but that's the way I always viewed their relationship. Like, ideally, Wolverine would be with Jean, but he holds her in such high regard that she's too good for him, and he knows she's too good for him, and she wouldn't, he wouldn't let her like sully herself as to being with him. Uh, I'm not sure where they go from here, and unfortunately I'm less interested in finding out than I was before reading it. So, we'll see where that goes. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and for clarifying Veg, Damien. I very much appreciate it. Next, Joe Crawford is sharing with us his rankings for the Dawn of X number 5s. He says, I just finished Dawn of X book 5. Ranked 1 to 6 are New Mutants, X-Force, Marauders, X-Men, Excalibur, and Fallen Angels. To which, uh, we're pretty close on our rankings here. Um, I'm Looking back, I'm not sure why I would rank X-Men as being better than X-Force, though. Because if I'm remembering right, the X-Men issue was that weird one-off having to do with the Children of the Vault, which basically ignored the fact that X-23 was part of Fallen Angels, and it kind of relinquished her role as Wolverine Jr. But for some reason, I did rank X-Men higher than X-Force. I don't recall why. And, you know, back to Joe's list here. It's uh, it's another uh, another Excalibur and Fallen Angels anchor. Uh, well, I guess luckily you've only got one more issue of Fallen Angels left. And also, luckily, you only have one more issue of the Morgan Le Fay story in Excalibur. After that, you get, you get some fun stuff. So just get through number six, and everything will be smooth sailing. Joe wraps up with... The Art in New Mutants is amazing. I like the book a lot. And, of course, he's talking about Rod the Ridiculous Reese. I mean, this guy is amazing. Uh, just inhuman in talent here. I, I love his work. It's just it's phenomenal stuff. But thank you so much for sharing your list there, Joe, and your thoughts on the issue fives. And we're going to wrap up with a missive from our friend Al Sedano, who's talking about X-Men number two. He says, it's funny, but it seems like it's easier for you to post a new episode each day than it is for me to listen and comment. Let's also let's not also forget how often I'm able to get my own episodes out, so thanks for giving me a complex. And uh, obsessiveness is nothing to covet, so don't worry about that. I'm a very strange man. <laughs> anyway, I at least have some thoughts on X-Men number two. He says, first of all, I can see what you're saying about how Cyclops is acting with his kids, but I did enjoy it. It felt very dad also, I seem to remember Scott getting very much into his new life roles before things ev- inevitably go to crap. Look at how he was in the beginning of his marriage with Madeline. He was ve- very into being a husband, at least from what I remember. 
Maybe he's trying to enjoy this before all hell eventually breaks loose. Though yes, perhaps Xavier getting killed should qualify. Maybe he was just repressing. I know weird, I know weird for Cyclops to do, but it's possible. And, you know, you might be right. Maybe he is just trying to, you know, make his best go at it. And he's only acting the way he thinks he ought to. I've, uh, you know, commented that he's like the wacky suburban dad. He's the sitcom dad. And uh, to me, that doesn't feel like Cyclops, but he could just be overcorrecting. He might know that the happiness and the peace that he now has in his life is very likely short-lived, so he's just going to make the best of it. And I totally forgot. I mean... Yeah, Xavier had his brains blown out in uh, in X Force, <laughs> and I think it got a very passing mention in here, which was kind of strange. Uh, Xavier's death really didn't get the uh, didn't really get the reaction I feel like it should have. Uh, Al continues. Also, I don't think we're going to get a roster for this title. I think technically everyone on Krakoa is now an X Man, so this title will be about the main events happening to this new nation. To which, bingo, you got it in one. To me, this is the, this is as though X-Men Unlimited was pushed to the forefront of the line. So it's not so much the straw that stirs the drink, but instead it kind of guides the way and plants seeds that'll be explored at a later date. In a lot of ways, I can appreciate that. You know? In another way, though, I see it as kind of gimmicky and... I don't want to say lazy, but just just gimmicky. Because uh, Claremont was able to plant seeds just about anywhere, right? We knew that he could have a half dozen subplots bubbling along, and it wouldn't derail the book, and everything would unfold as it should. Here, it's like we're, we're devoting an entire volume of the flagship book to plant seeds. To me, that just feels... I don't know, like it feels uh, it feels too extra, right? And it's giving us information because I mean, you gotta bloat it. It can't just be a, a like a bubble and subplot. It has to have backstory. It has to have all this stuff to fill an entire comic book. To me, I mean, you know how I am with my opinions here. If it's my opinion versus someone else's, I always say the other person's right and I'm wrong. So maybe I'm wrong. It just feels like. Uh, I don't know. I, I just expected more out of the X Men title, and uh, this, you know, these one and dones or two and dones, really just don't do it for me. Uh, back to Al. He says, "Speaking of all these new X Men, is it weird that I trust Apocalypse a lot more than Sinister? Maybe it has to do with the future issues of Hawks Pox, as we know Sinister will be a traitor, but not Apocalypse." And you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm a bit iffy on them both. Um, there are times where both seem. Somewhat trustworthy And there are other times where I wouldn't trust them with my lasagna recipe <laughs> You know, they uh, they seem sketchy, really sketchy at times But other times they just seem like good soldiers, right? They do make for very interesting flavor for this era And I will say that I'm enjoying them both far more than I thought I would when we started this I thought it was just going to be like, you know, the square peg into the round hole with Apocalypse and Sinister And uh, so far so good so far, so good. I'm enjoying Apocalypse's, most of Apocalypse's bits in Excalibur. And Sinister's been pretty good in Hellions. So, not bad. Not bad at all. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Al. I really appreciate you keeping up and, uh, and keeping on with the, uh, the Dawn of X uh, anthologies here. It's really, really cool to hear your thoughts. 
and I love the fact that we've got folks at different stages in the uh, in the read through here. So we get to address everything. It keeps me on my heels, on my toes, I guess, not my heels, my toes, and uh, helps to refresh me when I have forgotten some things. Because uh, I mean, over the course of the past few months, we've read well 82 issues of this stuff. So it's uh, sometimes they blend. So. It's nice to get a reminder every now and again, so thank you so much for that. Now, if anyone else out there would like to share their thoughts with me, I'm a fairly easy guy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com that's dedicated to these xlapsed family of shows. Uh, you could talk to us about all sorts of stuff over at 90s X-Men on Facebook, or you could listen to everything in the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. One down, three to go for Empire colon X-Men. Uh, I hope I wasn't too negative. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say we're going to be cautiously optimistic moving forward. We're going to be open to having our minds blown, or at least changed. Uh, I can say that with 100% sincerity that I will try to uh, remove my bias and see if we can uh, accept these a little bit better moving forward. But I want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today and sharing your ears and sharing your thoughts. Uh, And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 83 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, yeah, we're we're still with Empire. Um, I'm going to be straight up with you guys here. I've uh, been sitting on the notes for this episode for a couple days now because I was just trying to think of nice things to say and uh, really kind of struggled with this one because I don't want to come across as being overly negative. I don't want to come across as being dismissive. I don't want to come across as being what so many people think seasoned comics fans are. You know what I mean? But uh, 
sometimes something just is what it is, uh, as, as much as it sucks to say that. Is this the case with Empire X-Men number two? Well, I, I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out as we go along. Which is to say, we are about to discuss Empire, colon, X-Men number two, which had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called Growing Strong, written by Jerry Duggan, Ben Percy, and Leo Williams. So it's uh, more of our Dawn of X uh, writing team here. We've got uh, Duggan from Marauders, Percy from Wolverine and uh, X-Force, and we have Leo Williams from the upcoming X-Factor. Art by Lucas Warnick, colors Nolan Wooded. Let is VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price five friggin' dollars. Went on sale August 5th, 2020. Now we start right away with the roll call. We've got Magic, Penance, Angel, Multiple Men, Black Tom Cassidy, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explodey Boy. I'm already not in the mood for this. Um, double page spread of creds to follow, and then we get into comics content. So yeah, we open with the old ladies being wildly funny with the cursing and whatnot. Um, they were somehow able to, act, to access the Krakoan gateway, but that only gets a mention at this point. Uh, no explanation about how they can do so. Unless I somehow missed an explanation that they made back in X-Men number 3 back in the long ago. Because... To be perfectly honest, I did kind of glaze over during parts of that one. Uh, Now, they lay eyes on Angel and begin to swoon because, you know, he's one handsome dude. Augusta and Opal then double-team a veg alien and hack him to pieces. Now, if you recall, horticulture's gimmick is that they would collect samples of plants and stuff. And boy, I really wish my autocorrect didn't change horticulture to horticulture every single time. Now, I have to write it with a hyphen so it doesn't autocorrect. Anyway... Now, Warren, he tries to stop them from, well, basically doing what they already did. I mean, he watched them chop up the veg alien, right? Anyway, Augusta responds by spraying him in the face with a green mist, which causes him to view the old bags as, uh, well, more supple, shapely, and far younger ladies. And so Warren is completely under their spell, willing to do their bidding. Now, this pheromone spray, or whatever it is, does not work on M nor Ilyana, but as our camera pans out, we see that it did affect our multiple man. And so he heads over to the Estelle Getty lookalike in the big old Professor X chair to do her bidding. Isn't Jamie married? I mean, whatever happened to Layla Miller? Did I, 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 I must have missed something, because I, I don't know that we've seen her in ages. Maybe even since the, uh, the old Peter David run there. It's an odd... Um, Well, maybe it's not very odd. Who knows? Anyway, that rumbling starts again. Remember the rumbling from last episode and issue? It looks like we're in for another wave. Now, Augusta asks Angel to fly her up in the sky to get a better look, and also to sing her some Neil Diamond. And so, to a bit of Sweet Caroline, that's exactly what he does. To which I say, come on, Sweet Caroline, that's the lazy pick. Now, if you want to impress us, maybe do some Cracklin' Rosie. You know, Sweet Caroline, everybody knows that one. Anyway, they find out that, yes, indeed, there is another wave coming. And so Magic and Opal decides it's probably best for both sides here to set aside their differences, at least for the moment. So, yeah, we go right into a big fight scene, during which, uh, well, now here's a little uh, seasoned X-Fan bait. Uh, Magic, she's fighting a veggie alien, right? 
And she tells this veggie alien that uh, once back in the long ago, the X-Men once killed a billion broccolis. Well, first of all, they were asparaguses. Second, that wasn't the X-Men, that was Dark Phoenix. Third, even if it was the X-Men, is the complete planetary genocide of a civilization something we really want to brag about? Really? Uh, Kind of a lazy attempt at playing to the cheap seats here. I mean, I got the reference, I just didn't pop for it. Anyway, Magic then decides to employ her friends from Limbo to serve as a cleanup crew, and with the wave of the Soul Sword, that's exactly what she does. Now, it's worth noting here that Magic is cursing about as much as the old biddies, and it's a... Whatever novelty it might have had, that ship sailed ages ago. This is not funny. Okay, nearby, we join a veggie man at the Katati warship, and he's being followed by friggin' Explody Boy. Now, after claiming that the Kotati have already taken root here, the plant man employs a sort of self-destruct feature on the craft. Now, this causes like a giant bulb, not like a light bulb, but like a plant bulb to open up, which spews forth a whole bunch of roots and vines. It also bubbles into this really disgusting seed pod, which winds up trapping Madrox, M, and half of the Horde culture. Magic tries to cut through it, but alas, her soul sword cannot. We jump back to Krakoa, where Black Tom is Black Tomming. Uh, The Krakoa Genosha Gate is now completely down, and so he tries to figure out a way to be of use. And um, he somehow finagles his way into the Krakoan pollen, dirt, fungus, and mold on the bottom of Angel's boot. Huh? Okay, well this causes him to manifest as a teeny tiny Tom Avatar, which would be kind of cute if it weren't just so try-hard and contrived. Now, he shows up on Angel's shoulder, and he gets a gander at the madness going on down below. Now, upon reconnoitering with the rest of the crew, one of the Horde culture hags suggests that, uh, hey, if they were to concoct some black walnut trees, those would attack the roots of this seed pond gimmick. And so, Black Tom, with the aid of Krakoa itself, complies. Unfortunately, this only seems to anger the seed pod. But on the bright side, it spits Jamie Madrox out. He tells his teammates to, you know, whatever you're doing, stop it because it nearly killed Monet. Now, if you remember, Krakoa feeds off psychic energy and whatnot, at least when it's convenient to the story. Magic realizes that she's going to need some psychic backup, right? And so she asks the old hags if they'd reopen the Krakoa Genosha gateway. And they refuse. And so Magic locks them in limbo until they change their mind, which they do pretty quickly. Then Magic, as war captain, remember she is a Krakoan captain, she delivers a call to arms to any psychic mutants on Krakoa, and we wrap up this issue with the cavalry arriving, and it's a real who's who. We see Quentin Quaya, the Stepford Cuckoos, Exodus, Mastermind, Lady Mastermind, Saline, Sassy Sinister, and... the friggin' Shadow King? The Shadow King is on Krakoa? You gotta be kidding me. Well, okay, well, that's where we leave it. Uh, Next episode, Empire rolls on, and, uh, well, I guess at least we're halfway through it, huh? So how about we talk about it? Um, Yeah, still not loving this. I still feel like we're kind of the victim of a Marvel grift here. Uh, They're banking on people like me and and maybe some of you to buy these things. Um, And, I mean, I have been... That uh, Marvel zombie, or the X-Men zombie anyway, for quite a while now. I mean, 
I did the same thing with things like Uncanny X-Force Fear Itself, Civil War X-Men, Civil War II X-Men, Secret Invasion X-Men, Dark Reign X-Men, War of the Realms Uncanny X-Men, Chaos War X-Men, the insane amount of Secret Wars minis from 2015, and I'm sure there's a handful that I'm forgetting. These tie-in miniseries is, 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 are mostly pointless and are so far on the fringes of what's actually happening in the main event that they just plain don't matter. And I mean, okay, yes, in reality, these are all about making a buck. I get that, but I'm also trying to deliver my usual biting analysis. So I, uh, you know, I hate to stumble behind the mic and just say, yes, this was pointless, but they only made this to cash in on completionists, and to that end, I guess they were successful. Talk to you all again real soon. I mean, that wouldn't be a good show. Not that, not that you know, what you're listening to now is a good show, but that would be even worse. So let's try to justify the existence of this issue, okay? While I didn't dig it, I will say it went down a little easier than the first issue. Now, maybe... Maybe that's because now I sort of kind of have an expectation. Whereas with number one... I wasn't sure exactly what we were in for, right? What we were going to be getting ourselves into. Maybe my caution going in to the first issue was perhaps tempered with a bit more optimism than I consciously realized. And so when reality actually set in like a ton of bricks and I realized that we were getting this, you know, funny ha-ha with the explodey boy and the golden girls, maybe my disappointment was compounded a bit. Maybe it got the best of me, maybe. I don't know. Let's talk about what worked here. Now, this is going to sound crazy, but uh, with less try-hard dialogue, the old ladies might just work. Now, I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with their motivation. I don't have a problem with their actual existence. It's just the junior high school presentation of them that I can't stand. I mean, this is a Chris problem, to be sure, and it goes back to that rhetorical question that I have been asking a lot lately which is, wouldn't it be funny if... dot dot dot? Which, as I've said time and again, the answer is, more often than not, no. No, it would not be. Uh, Explodey Boy, he falls into the same sort of pocket for me. You know, wouldn't it be funny if... dot dot dot? There was this mutant who blew stuff up and he was called Explodey Boy. Well, no. No, it wouldn't be funny. It's not. This is like the worst sort of commercial comedy. You know, this is the sort of tripe that you'd see in, like, a Geico or a progressive auto insurance ad. I mean, you ever notice how every single commercial on TV right now tries to be funny? And how zero of them actually are? You know, those ad wizards would have come up with something just as expired as Explodey Boy. So, if it weren't for... If we were able to somehow walk back the try-hard dialogue... I could see horde culture not being something that makes me want to hurl my book across the room. Explodey Boy is Explodey Boy. <laughs> That's not going to be something I'm going to come around to. Yeah, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. And uh, Explodey Boy will wind up on my you know top X amount of characters of 2020. Who knows? What else? What else? Um... I really don't care about yet another Marvel alien invasion. I don't. Um, I don't think there's anything that could be done that can change that. These things are interchangeable. You don't know what year it is. You don't know what crossover it is. It's just more aliens coming to the Marvel Earth, right? 
that is not a fault of this book in particular. I mean, I mean, even just in the X books, we're coming out of an attempted brood invasion, right? X Men, uh, what nine and ten was the brood. There's more than one string on the guitar, Marvel. Maybe try plucking at some of the others every once in a while, because this is just too much of the same. At least, I will say there hasn't been any hero-versus-hero nonsense. At least not in this miniseries. Maybe the main Empire, um, you know, maxi-series event spectacular is full of, you know, Captain America punching the thing. Who knows? It's not here, so we'll just pretend we're ostriches, head in the sand, not paying attention to the bigger picture. For all the good and all the bad that implies. Let's see, uh, you know, like I said in the synopsis, I get the reference magic makes to killing the broccolis. But it's ill-thought-out shorthand writing like this that affects the narrative of these books to the more casual reader, right? Now let's remember that this is a tie-in in a mainstream Marvel crossover event, so... There might, be come, there might be people coming over here who are not familiar with the X-Men, right? So now any of those folks here, folks who are not familiar with the X-Men, not familiar with the lore, who reads this, they're going to think that, oh yeah, the X-Men once killed a billion Dabari aliens. When no, no they didn't. That was Phoenix. I mean, this is the sort of shorthand writing that... Uh, causes folks to insist that Jean Grey dies every other issue, right? I mean, we've all heard, oh, she's dead again. It's like, no, well, let's let's actually go back and look at how many times she's died. She's died less than most of the other X-Men. But we're always stuck on Jean dying because that's the narrative. That's the, the shorthand. That's the, that's the, you know, 250 character tweet version of what happens. It's lazy, it's pandering, and it's just plain incorrect to boot. And again, they were asparaguses, not broccolis. Let's see, the art. Let's talk about the art. I found the art to be better in this issue than in number one, so there's that. Well, at the same time, it wasn't such a jarring difference from one issue to the other. I still, I thought it was the same artist who just uh, was a little bit sharper with this issue. And no, it's a, it's a different artist altogether. Same inker, but a different, a different penciler. So I liked that a lot. thought the art was really, really nice. And uh, I guess I am kind of looking forward to seeing the psychics get involved next issue. I just hope that, you know, they don't kill Quentin Quire again. I will say, I mean, I made a point of pointing this out. Uh, we see the Shadow King here, right? And that feels like... That feels like it should be a bigger deal than they're presenting it as, right? Because I never imagined that the Shadow King would just join up with Professor X and just live on Krakoa, like, as a regular dude. And, and I figure if he did, which of course he did, they'd probably write a story to explain it, not just have him pop up in the background of a splash page where he's like the eighth most interesting character. I, I guess that might just be the nature of a crossover miniseries, though, right? I mean, if we go back to the last uh, you know, crossover miniseries we had, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, we saw a handful of cameos there that didn't quite sit right, right? Though at least with that one, it sort of has the excuse of coming out from a different editorial office. Not sure what the excuse is here, or if, uh, you know, maybe I just hold the Shadow King in a sort of rarefied air that Marvel does not. But it just seems like this should have been explained. He shouldn't just be in a panel. Overall, um, if I'm being honest, I think we're headed in the right direction. 
though that is definitely damning with faint praise because uh, I did not like that first issue and I didn't think it could get any worse. So, uh, and also with the first issue, I think I was just overwhelmed feeling disgusted and exploited as an X-Men completionist. And here today, I, I just feel kind of bored. So, I mean, it's baby steps, but it's in the right direction. And oh, by the way, all four issues of this Empire colon X-Men series will be $5 each. Which I'm going to try not to dwell on, because uh, I know I can do that sometimes, and uh, we, we all know it's a ripoff. We all know that they should not be charging $5 for this stuff. Um, I think that's all we really need to say about it. I, I, I'm going to try not to make too many mentions of it in the next two episodes, but... Uh, yeah, just so we're all on the same page, I think it's a ripoff, and I'm pretty sure uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. Now, overall, if you're an X-Men completionist, well, you, you already own this. If you're not, you can safely skip it, because you're not missing anything important. Though, if that does wind up changing over the course of the next two episodes, I will admit my mistake. So you have that. I hope in two episodes' time, you'll hear me saying, hey... I'm sorry, this is the greatest thing in the world. Everybody go out and get it. I just don't see that happening. But uh, if it does, I will definitely cop to my mistake. So that's all I got to say about Empire, colon, X-Men number two. Let's hop into the mailbag here, and we're going to talk to Damien first, who's talking about Giant Size X-Men Magneto number one. Now, Damien says, I've had a bit of a catch-up day, so you're going to be inundated with comments. I'm really mixed on this story. It's a fun little tale, but so much of it depends on knowledge of the history of these characters. You need to know that they have a long history together from Supervillain Team-Up onwards. I know their marketing giant size is an art-led book, but I wonder if they therefore think of it as a fan book, which will only be bought by people who know their ex-history. I think a new reader would be lost. There's no explanation of who Magneto and Namor are, and no direct reference to their shared history. That's a great point. That's a great point. It doesn't even make allusions to the recent Namor and uh, and Magneto history, where they were, you know, both X Men. You know, they were both on the team. They were both on the same team, living on Utopia or whatever. We don't really get that there. All we get is like, okay, Namor is kind of a kind of a douche, and Magneto is doing Emma Frost a solid for whatever reason. Uh, Damien continues. I like the way that Magneto reacted to the witch's challenge. It's evocative of the way the X-Men are taking the unexpected route. That's a very good call-out. That's a very good point. I didn't really put that together. I didn't really read into it much more than just seeing it as like the old Dungeon Master trap, you know? Like the uh, like one of those riddles where like the person next to me is lying, the person on the other side of me is telling the truth, and you can ask one question, and... It just felt very, very tropey to me. I, did, I didn't really think much more than that. Uh, Damien continues. As for the art, I'm actually a bigger fan of Ramon Perez than Ben Oliver, so I was glad of the artist change. In particular, I was really impressed with David Curiel's colors. I thought he really increased the mood. And yes, the colors here were very, very good. They were very, very good. I feel like maybe I don't give, as, give enough credit to... Um, to the rest of the art team, outside of the pencils or the, uh, you know, the just overall pencil, inker, artist. Uh, I don't really talk much about the colors, and uh, I probably should. Now, I honestly can't say if I like Perez or Oliver better. I'm not overly familiar with either one of them. Uh, I can say, though, that I didn't feel as though Perez warranted a showcase like this. 
you know, if this is the art-led book, this is the hey, hey, look at our artists. I mean, it was good, but it wasn't anything show-stopping like Dodderman or Davis on the prior two Giant Size offerings. When I hear that a book is going to be posed or poised as the one that you need to see because the art is going to just knock your socks off, this wasn't it. And I mean, maybe we're spoiled because we get Rod Reese every once in a while on New Mutants, but this was not, uh, this didn't stand out as being anything other than just good comic art, where Dodderman and Davis were just like, oh wow, you need to see this, you know? Just me though, who knows? Uh, Damien continues. I walk away from this issue wondering what Emma Frost is up to. The sentinel head seems like an ominous element to use in your architecture. Her original Hellions were slaughtered by the sentinels back in the 90s, and she ended up in a coma, so I can't imagine it as a place for her. Sebastian Shaw was behind the sentinels for quite some time. Do you think she's building a prison for him? She definitely wants to take revenge on him, but she can't kill him as he'd be resurrected. So a prison would fit her plans. And yeah, the question as to what to do with the island is definitely the main takeaway here. And everything you said is, uh, I mean, that's a great idea, isn't it? I mean, just as a, even if Shaw's not involved, just a prison island, you know? Um, Because, yeah, like you said, I couldn't see Emma wanting to reside somewhere that's adorned with a sentinel head. I don't know. Um... Because what I saw when when I saw it at first, I, I was just reminded of the Children of the Vault storyline that we saw in, boy, what was it, X Men Five, Volume Five, Number Five, where X twenty three Sink and Darwin went into the uh, into the into the vault. I remember seeing a Sentinel head as part of that architecture, and that's what I thought of right away. But I'm not sure one way or another which way this uh, might go, or further if it goes. Um, I mean, I do wonder if it'll come back around. Like, will we see it in the pages of Marauders, or will we never see it at all, ever again? I mean, we just never know with these sort of things. Um, this could be a seed they wind up, and you know, forgetting they ever planted. Hopefully we see it again. I just, uh, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to when that might be. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Giant Size Magneto. Uh, another $5 book. We're getting a lot of those, aren't we? Aren't we? Hmm. Uh, Next, Jesse DeJong gives us his HoxPoxDocs update. Now he says, Hey Chris, thanks for the call out and the feedback on my Generation X continuity list that I've been assembling. Now if you do decide to do a watch-along of the Generation X movie, you should specify since there are two versions. I still have the one that aired on Fox on VHS with the Mardi Gras buffers for the commercials. I never understood why they never uh, brought buff or refracts into the continuity. That's because Buff and Refrax were, uh, they were characters from the Generation X TV movie, and they, as far as I know, they never made their way into the Marvel Universe. And uh, I remember back in the long ago, I was surprised that they didn't get added in some sort of way. I mean, even as just like a pair of one-offs, even if, even if they were just a pair of villains or something, just to say they were there, you know? Um, I didn't know there were two versions of the movie either. Um, and I mean... To be completely honest, you all know by now that uh, the alternate media versions of comics properties are way outside my wheelhouse. If it's not, you know, saddle-stapled and folded, I really don't know much about it. So, I didn't know that, so thank you for that information. Uh, Jesse continues. We have both hit about the same spot in our reading of the Hox Pox Socks list. 
I'm so far behind due to wanting to read all of Empire since it's been years since I've read a whole crossover event. Originally, before the pandemic, the list of books was almost twice as large. There's a Thor story that keeps getting mentioned but didn't see print, although maybe they have it digitally. But I'm old school and I love to hold the books in my hands and take up way too much space in my basement. Anyway, it took me two months to get through all the issues in the event, and I can sum it up by saying this could have been a three-issue story in Future Foundation or Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. As soon as I finished Empire, King and Black dropped. I think I'll wait on that. And I'm trying to think... I'm trying to remember the last event I went all in with. Um, I know for DC, I was probably Convergence, which uh, well, which, which really sucked. Um, not, not a good event. It was it was a um, poorly disguised attempt to basically give DC a couple of months so they could move from New York to California, and they filled it with absolute throwaway. Trash, for the most part. Some of it was really good, but for the most part it was just like, hey, remember Batman and the Outsiders? Well, here they are, and it's never going to matter again. So there you go. But for Marvel, you know, it might have been the very same year. Uh, Or, yeah, because Convergence was 2015, so it might have been the very same year with the 2015 Secret Wars, at least for the first few months, uh, until everything kind of went off the rails. And, And... that's for me. You know, for me, it went off the rails. Because I know a lot of folks who absolutely adore that event. I unfortunately do not. Uh, and I know there were a lot of delays and a lot of stuff just got hiccuped. And uh, I, I, I do want to say that I did go into it with the best of intentions. I bought the uh, the DCBS Secret Wars bundles for the first few months. It would be like, hey, here's everything from Secret Wars. And every month it was like... It's like $160, and that was at like 40% off. So I probably spent like 500 bucks on Secret Wars, and I didn't even follow the, uh, you know, the side stories through the whole way. I have the, I have the whole main series and all the X-Men stuff, but I dropped everything else because it was just way, way too much. I mean, that would be way too much on something that I actually enjoyed, much less something that I really didn't. Um, but talking about Empire here, I could definitely believe that an event that's predicated on alien invasion, but this time it's plants, could have very easily been wrapped up in a very short arc in a single book. Um, and you mentioned, you know, King in Black, right? It's nuts how Marvel, they're not even pretending to give us a break from the mass crossovers anymore. Like, it used to be that we'd get at least a couple months between them, Right. It felt like, okay, well, here's, you know, we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up because every Marvel event, at least up until I stopped, you know, compulsively buying them, they were just stricken with delays. So it would just take forever to, like a nine-issue story would take 14 months to come out because it's just, they just kept getting delayed. And now it's like, I don't know if there are delays or not, but it doesn't even matter because they're just, they're just putting them out on top of one another, this is like a, what is that thing where, like, if you get two life sentences in jail, you can serve them both at the same time. <laughs> That's what it feels like with the Marvel events. It's just, we don't even get a breathing, any breathing room at all. It's just one into the other, into the other, into the other, usually with overlap, which is ridiculous. Back to Jesse. 
He says, as I've said before in a different message, the X-Men part of Empire event was as profound and entertaining as Fallen Angels was. But they did get me and you and others to buy it, so mission accomplished. You also got one of two wishes. Yes, this is a space thing, but no, it's not hero versus hero after the first issue. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I almost wrapped up last episode by saying, Fallen Angels, you're off the hook. (laughs) Because I can't believe that I'm actually looking back at Fallen Angels as being almost favorable by comparison. You know, I talk about nebulous things like heart. Fallen Angels didn't have none of that. This has even less. Um, But Fallen Angels, oh boy, it's like... Yeah, I would trade to read a Fallen Angels issue instead of another Empire issue. And it's true. I mean, this... I, I mentioned it before. This is a grift. This only exists to exploit completionists. And I can't say that it isn't successful to that end. You know, Marvel and, of course, Disney probably have some very good bean counters employed, and they know exactly what they're doing. So we're... People like me are... Uh, we're part of the problem. You know. Uh, Jesse continues... You've mentioned keeping a tally of mutants who have died since Hoxpox started, and you can add one more to the list. In Immortal She-Hulk number one, Wolverine flat-out kills a mutant named Tantrum and explains to She-Hulk that the guy will be okay because they have, quote, healers on Krakoa. Now, is Wolverine just up and killing people because it's the easiest way to deal with them? Is this his way of showing that mutants are not considered man or human so he can go against the new Krakoan law? I know X-Force is one thing, but the guy got stabbed from behind without even a punch or warning from old Logan. Wow. That I did not know. And that is so dumb. Just killing a mutant to prove that he could. Who, who the hell's writing that book? That's ridiculous. I gotta wonder if our head of X knew that this was gonna go down, because that's just wildly irresponsible. It seems to go against... So much of what they're building in the X-Men. But that who the hell is writing that? Jesus. Uh, now that said, I am only reading the X-Books. So if anybody listening can help me, you know, keep me apprised of mutant happenings and mutant deaths going on outside in the other books, please do let me know. Also, if there are, like, mutant Krakoa-centric stories happening outside of our little editorial fiefdom that you feel like I should devote an entire episode to... Definitely, please let me know. I know Fantastic Four number 26 has been brought up. The, uh, you know, the big Fra- Franklin retcon. Don't know if I should devote an entire episode to it. If, uh, if you all want me to, I will. So just let me know. And uh, we, can, we can definitely start peppering in you know, uh, other happenings that we might consider vital to the, you know, the X-lapsed lore. You know, the, the way we're weaving our way through this. So definitely let me know with that. Uh, back to Jesse. I would be slightly more interested in how many Hox Pox books do not have someone getting drunk in it. Wolverine getting Magneto plastered to get his helmet. Cyclops getting pass out drunk while meeting Phantom X. Kitty and Boom Boom always with a bottle in hand. Gene and Logan in a hot tub sharing a bottle of beer. And on and on and on. Did it all of a sudden become super cool to get stupid drunk or is Marvel just being irresponsible? They put out a a decree about smoking in their books, but I guess people being constantly sloshed is okay for T+. And, you know, it's funny. Anytime I mention the drinking, I I, I feel like I'm being a little too severe on it, right? But to me, 
It just stinks of those kids in high school who would draw like a marijuana leaf on the cover of their Trapper Keeper to show how edgy they were, right? It's low-hanging fruit, and it really doesn't impress me quite as much as I think it's supposed to. I think I'm supposed to be like, wow, this is cool, this is edgy, and it's like, no, it's stupid. Maybe if I were still a teenager, I'd be thinking this is like super cool and totally edgy. But as a 40-year-old man... I mean, first of all, I'm too old for this crap, but second of all, it just feels way too try-hard and pandering. It's it's writing for an audience that doesn't really exist, you know? You're, it's, it's just a different time right now. Don't know what else to say about it, but I do always worry that I'm being a little too harsh on it, but it's, it's pandering. Back to Jesse. Maybe I'm just complaining about Wolverine too much today, but I just finished X-Force number 10, and I can't tell you how much I hate the last page of that book. I don't feel so bad that I dumped a soda on the issue either. I do not like Gene and Logan being a thing with a big question mark over Scott. It may just be my upbringing, but I think past a point you need to commit to one person and not just have open relationships. I suppose I'm just old-fashioned, but if Gene is done with Scott, then let's come out and say it. Maybe she is, since Scott was into Emma for so long. I would like a clear understanding of who was with whom in the Scott, Gene, Logan, Emma relationship, and not just hints about rooms with the moon on the moon that connect. And yeah, I've I've said it before. This open relationship. I mean, we know it's there, right? I mean, we saw we all saw the schematic for the Summer House on X Men number one. You you just alluded to it there. And for folks who who somehow chose this episode to begin listening to this show and didn't listen to the older episodes, Gene's bedroom in the schematic can be accessed from both Scott and Logan's room. But that's all we really knew. And I, I didn't like it, but I was okay with it. Here, though, having it confirmed that this is an actual thruple, or quadruple, if we're going to include Emma, or whatever it actually is, I don't care for this. Um, This feels like yet another attempt at edginess for me. Uh, Either edginess or just a device to to evoke a reaction out of us seasoned readers, right? Just really don't know what the point of it is. I gotta hope that it's headed somewhere and won't just keep, you know, dribbling on. I I couldn't say one way or another where it's going. Uh, I would like for there to be clarification. Uh, I'm with you there. If if Jean is going to be with uh, Wolverine, then just have her be with Wolverine. If she's going to be with Scott, have her be with Scott. Uh, it's funny even talking about it because when this era ends and the next era begins, it'll all just change anyway. You know, we can have her and Wolverine get married in uh, in X Men Volume Five, Number Twenty Five, and then when the Dawn of X era ends. Uh, She'll be back with Scott, because the next writer will want him back with Scott. You know, it's... Who knows? Who knows? But for now, yeah, not liking it. Jesse continues. Well, ahead of time, I hope you get more out of Empire X-Men than I did, and I hope that this does not scare you away. There really isn't much X-Men involvement, except for the mini in this event. Wolverine joins the Fantastic Four with Spider-Man, and Cannonball and Sunspot show up at the very end for a wedding, is about all there is. And uh, yes, so far, we're on the same page regarding Empire, my friend. I didn't think there'd be much, if any, X-Men involvement in the main story. And uh, I did take a look at some of the house ads as I was making my way through to get here. And from the house ads that I've seen, 
I want to say the only ex-presence that I noticed was Wolverine, maybe Deadpool, you know, and I don't even know if we consider Deadpool one of ours anymore. And I mean, that's not surprising in the slightest, because how do you cross the streams with the mainstream Marvel Universe and Dawn of X era X-Men and make them work together? It's just, they're going to be fighting each other, and it's going to be... It just wouldn't make for an interesting or uh, engaging story, you know. Now, Jesse continues. I didn't expect this email to be so negative, but apparently I'm a white picket fences guy with a freshly kept lawn and not a sleep around drunk with bottles and bodies all around. I think my wife prefers it this way. To which, yes, we're all a little bit Jeff Bannister, aren't we? (laughs) He says, uh, he wraps up with, thanks, Chris, and until next time, keep it going. And we absolutely will. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time for such a uh, thoughtful email. Uh, it was really, really great getting that and uh, being able to share it with the folks. So thank you so, so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from Joe Crawford, who just finished the Dawn of X Anthology, Volume 6. Now he says, I finished Dawn of X, Book 6, and his rankings are as follows. X-Men, New Mutants, Marauders, X-Force, Excalibur, and Fallen Angels. He says, Fallen Angels ends. This was my favorite Excalibur so far. Call Me Kate gets Marauder's Doctor spot. Uh, New Mutants pulls a Zatanna. X-Force goes Floronic. And Don't Screw With Destiny. Mostly good, this one. And yes, X-Men number six was fantastic. Uh, for folks who might not remember, this is the uh, this is the focus on Mystique, where we find out that uh, she knows a little bit. She, uh, she has a little bit of information from Destiny about, uh, about Krakoa even being a thing in the first place. And, of course, she wants Destiny to come back. And Destiny says, if you can't bring me back, then just burn this place down. So, really, really awesome issue of X-Men. And I believe that was my number one out of the sixes as well. Just a fantastic issue. Um, we, I talked with Joe a little bit on the uh, socials today, and... Uh, uh, Call Me Kate is uh, starting to get on his nerves like it got on my nerves. <laughs> and uh, I guess that really, really got under his skin for this one because it pushed uh, it pushed the book, the entire book down a peg for him. Now, X-Force number six was another really good one for me. I believe this is the one with, uh, well, Joe says it right there. They go Floronic. This is with the Telefloronics in uh, Terra Verde. Was it Terra Verde? Maybe. Where Beast does the thing. You know, I, I love that idea of a, you know, floronic post-human sort of a situation. I, I thought that opened up a lot of opportunities for, for very interesting storytelling. Fallen Angels, hey, hey, at least it's over, right? Um, I think in Fallen Angels number six, that's where Quanon sprouted butterfly wings and uh, probably learned the same thing about a path for the 87th time. So, yeah, it's a good thing that's over. And I did talk to Joe a little bit about uh, what's to come, and apparently I was very excited for him to check out X-Men number 7, you know, the Crucible issue, the, you know, the, the real big one. And uh, I guess that one's not included in the Dawn of X Anthology book 7, but it's in Dawn of X Anthology book 8. And I do recall we did go for a little while without getting an issue of X-Men, so I wonder if that's what it had to do with. Maybe they were trying to get some other stories in there before, before hitting the Crucible. I have to assume that they know what they're doing, because otherwise, I mean, who knows? 
But uh, Joe might actually skip around and get to X-Men number 7. He'll, he might pull it up on the app to give it a look. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting his thoughts on The Crucible because, yeah, that's a... Uh, you know, if, if there was ever a shoe drop issue of the Dawn of X era, that's the one. And uh, if anybody listening has not read X-Men number 7, please do so and let me know what you thought about it. And uh, maybe even listen to the episode where I have a... Wildly interesting conversation with myself about it So uh, that's X-Men number 7 But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Joe You're just burning through these books You're going to be caught up with us pretty damn quick And that's awesome That's really awesome But thanks so much for sharing And if uh, anyone out there listening would like to share Please do so You could reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter Or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. I tried posting an episode there today, and uh, Facebook gave me an error. I tried for about an hour, in and out, and uh, kept getting errors. So you might might not see anything there for a day or two, but uh, (laughs) it's not my fault, I promise. Um, but that is 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can check out all the rest of the audio at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. It's the full Chris and Reggie channel archives. Uh, there's thousands of hours of audio that uh, a couple hundred thousand of ears have listened to. So plenty of stuff there, hopefully something that interests you. So I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Uh, we are halfway through Empire, so that's a good thing, which means we're only three episodes away from introducing the last Wave 2 book from Dawn of X that's going to be X-Factor, and I'm really, really looking forward to checking that one out. I've heard plenty of good things about it, and I hear that there's a uh, a little warwolf puppy in it, so I'm, I'm really interested in getting to that one. So that's where we'll leave for today. One last big thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today, even though these past couple of episodes have been a little bit more negative than I like to be. I do appreciate you sticking around with me and uh, tolerating it. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh